Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads and lasses, and those that don't prescribe to a gender, welcome to Pot of the Dragon. That's right, Spencer. It's episode one. We got there. We did it. House of the Dragon has premiered. We have seen episode one. We have done our reaction podcast. We have let it marinate. We have probably, or at least for me, watched it multiple times. We've written notes, and now we have sat down to talk very seriously about episode one. My question for you, out the gate, has anything changed in your mind with regards to this episode since we heard you last on Sunday night during our immediate at reaction podcast? Well, Lee, as you well know about me, I only like something the first time I watch it, and anything that even vaguely resembles a sequel, I automatically start to hate. So my opinion has gone down, you know, dramatically, but that's to be... I still love it. I've watched it twice now, and it was still great. Uh, it, it is an excellent bit of television. I was legitimately surprised with the degree of confidence, the degree of well-structured planning that went into the starter episode of this show. And I, it gives me good hopes going forward for what this thing can bring to bear. I'll tell you this. The show, Ryan Condal is is like the producer that does like the lore and the story building and the scripts and all of that. Handpicked by George R. R. Martin, biggest Song of Ice and Fire fanboy. One thing he did through episode one is show me, I don't know quite as much about a Song of Ice and Fire as I thought I did. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the shit I've said on this podcast feed uh, was wrong. So uh, I'm going to do my best to correct that going forward. But on this review episode of episode one, House of the Dragon, we are going to go through a recap, beat by beat recap. If you have joined us on any other Mangum Talks podcast, you know exactly how our recap goes. I will do the recap. I will insert bad accents, bad impressions. <laughs> Mediocre jokes. Spencer will be sully. We will argue. We will fight. And we will get through the recap. And then we will go to our segment. Segments is always kicked off by a segment that I am God Emperor of. Best line of the episode. We will pick the best line of dialogue between both Spencer and I. And then we will go to segments for this specific podcast feed, Pot of the Dragon. I will tell you one of the segments. And I'm going to kick it over to Spencer to do the other. My segment that I'm bringing to this podcast that I'm so excited to tell you all about it is... Is Game of Thrones back? That's it. That's <laughs> oh, my segment. About that. Is Game of Thrones back? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick one part of the episode that I think is going to get everybody jazzed, get the uh, fandom excited, get the internet going, Reddit threads, Twitter, everything rolling. I'm going to point it out. I'm going to point out why I think it's so cool, why I think it's going to invigorate the fandom, and then I'm going to pose the question to you, Spencer, and all of the folks listening at home, is Game of Thrones back? Looking forward to that. On my behalf, one of the things that people were most critical of when it came to the last few seasons of the show, even before they ran out of books, is they didn't feel the quality of adaptation was there as much. There were poor decisions made about changes. There were effects of the butterfly's wing that were resonating in ways the writers clearly didn't plan. People lost trust with the ability of the writers to adapt the show. So I think an interesting thing to to unpack, particularly now in the early moments of this show, is a book-to-screen question. There are key changes that have already been made in terms of adapting the many bits of material that have been written about the Dance of Dragons in this show already. Key changes made from book to screen. And we are going to discuss week to week one change. One change for each episode. We are going to go back and forth about where we think this could go, whether we think it's a good idea, whether we think it's a problem, and whether we think it's going to ruin the show and break all of Lee's hopes and dreams. Yeah, I'm really, uh, I'm sitting wrapped for that one, Spencer, because I just imagine that you're going to be like, yeah, they changed it, and I'm really excited that they changed it. That's a great thing for them to change, and I'm sure nothing bad will happen. You have such hopes and dreams, sir. 
Oh, man, that's going to be so much fun. So this is a Mangum Talks podcast. Thank you all for listening. If you have not heard any of our stuff before, if you found us through just a random search on whatever podcast platform you use of House of the Dragon, you can find all of our podcasts at MangumTalks.com, or you can just that type into that same search bar that you found us in type in mangum talks and all of our podcasts will pop up we've got a number of podcast feeds reviewing a number of really great television shows ted lasso the nevers game of thrones obviously we did succession which was a lot of fun we have a mangum talks tv podcast feed that really is just a just a mashup of all the stuff we're super interested in anything kind of random that we review that we talk about that we record we like to throw on that podcast feed and many 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 others so please check out all of our stuff at mangumtalks.com or go to your favorite podcast platform and type in mangum talks those are the key words now spencer i think it's time we jump in episode one house of the dragon we did not get an episode title did we i did not see that on my hbo max little player thing and, and you as a religious follower of twitter it seemed like that was a substantial comment and criticism people were offering for people that were afraid that the show just wouldn't have an intro again for how much people loved the game of thrones intro back in the day this one starts history it starts very lord of the rings kind of style of words it's a narrated flashback to the to not even the ancient but the past before the show starts to kind of set up the moments that are going to come afterwards. I think we can reasonably predict, though, that maybe starting with episode two, we're going to get what the new intro of the show is going to be. So as big media moguls that we are, of course, we uh, obviously got all the screeners for mm-hmm. all of the episodes. Mm-hmm. And I can assure everyone that there is an intro that we will get starting in episode two. I promise you that. Uh, yeah. This is... They, they just switched it up for episode one because Spencer, like Spencer said, they like to, I'm, I'm bullshitting about the screeners, by the way. Uh, nobody <laughs> sent us anything. Everyone we don't knew. know. But I am sure that they're going to have an intro. They obviously are going to have an intro. They just didn't do it for this because they were trying to set the stage. They were trying to bring the casuals along. If you followed any of our podcasts before, you know that I like to rep for the casual because those are the people who pay the bills. Without the casual fans of the show, the show would not exist. Mm-hmm. So they have got to bring people along and I think they do it beautifully here so let's jump into the recap it starts with a voiceover as the first century of the targaryen dynasty was coming to a close i'm not gonna do the whole thing but it's kind of that voice talking about basically the great council and jaharis my favorite king who john what john snow should have been named jaharis it absolutely should have been named that and i think it's fair to say the good king jaharis is everybody's favorite king if there was a best period to live in westeros it was probably during some part of his 60-year reign yeah jaharis was the best his health was failing. He did not have an obvious hair because both of his sons died. And so what did he do? He called a great council, brought all the lords and ladies of Westeros all together to Harrenhal of all places. Which looks why, beautiful in the show. Why Harrenhal, Spencer? Why did he bring everybody to Harrenhal? Do you know? Uh, well, A, it's large enough, so that could possibly be a reason. It also, I think, it, I, I don't know the exact reason, but I suspect a certain element of, sim- of symbology, too. That it is the, you know, the place where kings were overthrown and new kings made. Is there, is there a stated reason, though? No, there's not really, other than it was really big. I do know that, like, when it, uh, when here, when, when the Great Council happened, Harrenhal became the third largest city in Westeros. It, like, swelled to the size of the third largest behind Old Town and King's Landing. I have to think that part of this is, if you're the Targaryen, uh, you the Targaryen family, you kind of like people walking around looking up going, what happened to the sealant? Yeah. Oh yeah, the fucking dragons. That's what happened. It, uh, it also, I think that's a great call. Also in practical terms, it is kind of in the middle. If yeah, for sure. If yeah. you're wanting yeah, all the is. lords to meet at some place, some place in the Riverlands, not a bad call. They claim over a thousand lords made the journey to Harrenhal, and 14 succession claims were heard, but only two were truly considered. 
One, Princess Rhaenys Targaryen, the king's eldest descendant. Her older, co- and then her older cousin, Prince yeah, Viserys Targaryen. Cousin. Her, yeah, her younger cousin. Yeah, you're right. Her younger cousin, Prince Viserys Targaryen, the king's eldest male ascendant. So you had the king's eldest descendant in Rhaenys, and then the king's eldest male descendant in Viserys, who is, as Spencer just called that, younger than Rhaenys. Well, who did you think the lords and ladies, not ladies, who the the lords of Westeros picked, Spencer? With few exceptions, they practiced male primogeniture, as have the Targaryens to date. So, setting it to the vote, Jahiris probably expected what the outcome was going to be. Yeah, and I think that, like, the actual tally is included in some of the literature. It was it was a blowout. I mean, not, yeah, uh, not even close. Yeah, Viserys had like I think something like 80% of the vote or something crazy. The old king announces it on the show. Viserys tries to not seem super excited but seems, you know, pretty pleased and Rainey's What did you think of Rainey's face when it got announced? It what it didn't seem to scream necessarily disappointment or anger or even necessarily surprise. I think there was almost a certain element of resigned and expected that she was not going to make it. Yeah, when it was announced and you got her face in the background, just a little titter is the Game of Thrones theme. Mm-hmm. And I think that they threw that in to indicate, like, this is the Game of Thrones. This yeah. is it. It's not fair. It's brutal. It fucking makes you want to f- fucking throw your television across the, the room sometimes because of shit like this that happens. But that is the Game of Thrones. So it goes on. Rainey's a woman could not would not inherit the Iron Throne. The lords instead choose chose Viserys, my father. So there we go. We know that the the person who is doing this voiceover is Rhaenyra Targaryen. Jaehaerys called the Great Council to prevent a war being fought over his succession. Potential line of the episode, first one we got here in the recap, for he knew the cold truth. The only thing that could tear down the House of the Dragon was itself. Don't history prove that a dozen times over. Very true. Cut to um, a credit with the Targ sigil. It is not the opening credits, I don't think. It's just, boom, here's the Targ sigil. And uh, then we get the text. It's now the ninth. Is just a text on screen here. It is now the ninth year of King Viserys I Targaryen's reign, 172 years before the death of the Mad King Ares and the birth of his daughter, Princess Daenerys Targaryen. So for those who may have forgotten, the Mad King Ares overthrown by King Bobby B, the best mm-hmm. of all time, the GOAT, King Bobby B from the Baratheon clan. Shout out Baratheons. He died at the same time his daughter was born. Um, so his daughter was over, I think it was on Dragon's, or no, his daughter was born and then taken away, but it, it, like he died basically around the same time, like right at the same time his daughter was being born, right? So it, Daenerys has no real memory of her father, right? Yeah. Like she was she did. She didn't like grow up with her dad, and like he died when he's three or four. It was basically at the same time. Yeah, day one, Daenerys lost both of her parents because her dad killed by Jaime Lannister. Her mom died in childbirth with an epic storm destroying the entire the entire uh, Targaryen fleet at Dragonstone. Hence, why Daenerys's nickname in the books is Daenerys Stormborn. So from day one, she's just raised by her brother. We saw how well that worked out. But her connection to the Mad King is purely genetics. Some would say the Mad King killed himself. Some would say. <laughs> he did everything. Only Jamie Lannister knows how much that is true. Starts with a uh, variation of Danny's theme. I don't know if you caught that. The little, the Danny's Targaryen theme uh, as we're in the sky. And we see Rhaenyra riding Cyrax. Cyrax is 
Rhaenyra as dragon. We're going to do our level best to help you all with the dragon names. Mm-hmm. HBO has also done so. HBO has a, a website completely dedicated now to House of the Dragon. Let me get that URL for everybody while we sit here, just so people know. It is hbo.com backslash house house dash of dash the dash dragon hbo.com backslash house dash of dash the dash dragon and they basically flesh all this out for you right so if you're confused about the dragons if you're confused about the major houses the character names anything this website will give it to you but we will also help you here on this podcast so cyrax is renera's dragon and they are flying toward king's landing and as is common with a lot of the dragons, Cyrex is named after one of the Valerian gods of old. And we hear about the Valeria that was lost a few times in this first episode. Beautiful overhead shot of King's Landing as she rides toward the Dragon Pit. The Dragon Pit, if you remember from Season 7 and 8 of Game of Thrones, was described as a place where the Targaryens kept all their dragons, basically. Basically a dragon parking lot, Spencer. It's where they park their dragons. I, and if you want to talk about early moments that make apparent how much the budget of this show has gone up, the Dragon Pit is significantly bigger than the what was otherwise classical ruin that they filmed it in back in the la- last season of Game of Thrones. Yeah, let me give numbers to the budget because you, you get a little sideways when you start talking about budgets. So, um, lawyer that you are, the budget's not your thing. Uh, season eight, <laughs> season eight of Game of Thrones per episode averaged $15 million to make. This season of television, House of the Dragon, $18 million to make. Now with the fact that this was the season eight of Game of Thrones was made, I believe, in 2017. This was made in 2020-21, three, four years later. There's a lot of inflation that we all know about. Like, I feel like the cost stayed relatively same, or maybe even dropped when you when you start comparing it. Season one Game of Thrones, which Spencer likes to talk about, well, they just did that with Kleenex and duct tape. Three million per episode. Tin cans on strings. It's just amazing they were even able to afford the gas to get to the locations necessary. I, I, I agree with you that, you know, the budgets aren't necessarily that different between season eight and this. I would note that with a show that runs that long, actor salary bloat is real. And I bet that they've got significantly cheaper costs on the actors now to now spend on other things. Oh, no, no, I wasn't trying to un- undercut your point. I, I mean, I, I was insulting you by saying you get sideways on budgets, but I wasn't trying to undercut that specific point because I do think you're right that it, it does seem like they had plenty of budget with this. I think that the show deserves a lot of credit for doing a lot with really what's not a lot of money when you think about when you start comparing it to everything else. I think like uh, season four of Stranger Things was 30 million an episode. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's like. Um, Texas or something per episode that the Lord of the Rings show is. So like, it's unbelievable like how these shows have bloated in budget and it seems like the House of the Dragon has kept it relatively reasonable. I think, I think that's apparent to a certain degree that the show seems a little bit more managed, better managed when it comes to using their budget because I'm not sure where the 450 million that, that Amazon is spending on its first season of Lord of the Rings is exactly going. Just, yeah. If you if you're really into the Lord of the, the Rings of Power and you're really excited about that and you're pulling a league and you're going to be optimistic no matter what, we're going to disappoint you on this podcast because we're going to throw a lot of shade at that fucking show because it doesn't look good for four hundred fifty million dollars. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, anyway, so they uh, Cyrax with Rhaenyra on Dragonback lands in the Dragon Pit. Cool little thing that we noticed here is that we got some Dragon Pit workers we who did. know no Valerian. <laughs> they better. Yeah, and then that's how they speak to. Uh, the dragons, we get 
Dohairis Cyrex, which is the first command we hear one of them shout. And it kind of, it's cool too, because I love the storytelling that it does with just very little time. It's clear to me that there's like one old hand at the dragon pit, and there's mm-hmm. one new guy. And the new guy's like scared as shit, because he's in front of Cyrex, and the old guy's trying to give him some confidence, like, say the command, we, say what I told you, say what I told you. Say what, and, he, and he does, and it works out. And Cyrex bow, you know, gets down, uh, Renair is able to get out, and eventually Cyrex goes into the dragon pit. And by the way, before we, before we uh, talk about this scene, I cannot fucking wait for them to show us where Cyrex went. Oh, God. I want Because I want to see the big auditorium with all the dragons strapped down. That's they, what I want to see. They've got ten full-size adult dragons right now, not counting all the little babies, the little juveniles that are going to grow up over the course of those next few decades in war. So cool. I, yeah, I want to see that area very, very much. Um Two things I absolutely adore this scene. You commented on one. I love the old and new effect because it's such wonderful world building they put into just these initial scenes of the rest of the world reacting to dragons. You talked in our little first acknowledgement um, pre-episode. I, like you, love the scene of her flying over King's Landing and everybody's just looking up going, oh, look, it's like a bird. It's a pigeon practically them flying over just to how common it is. For it's kind of like they live near an airport. Yeah, very much. That's perfect. I mean, it's very much, this is just another Tuesday, there's a dragon flying overhead. Oh, look at that. It's, it's an, it's, it's, they're so used to it now from the sheer number of dragons that are flying around, it's commonplace. However, when they're managing at close range, I think you and I would share the similar fear to this new hand of where this is a very large carnivorous creature that can charcoal me in an instant if I don't say the right word in a dead language. The idea that we control the dragons is delusion. It's an illusion, Spencer. Uh, we are going to talk about that at the end of this episode, because there were some things dropped at the end there with respect to dragons we had never heard before. Then we have Spencer's favorite character in this entire story, Harold Westerling, of the Kinsguard, uh, there to re- meet Rhaenyra. Um, and he uh, he seems happy she landed safely. They have they they jest a little bit. I would say they have a little rapport back and forth. It's clear that um, you know I think that what we saw in Game of Thrones I think holds true um, here, and that is that generally, if you're a member of the immediate royal family, you probably buddy up to like one Kingsguard, right? All the Kingsguard are sworn to protect you, but they usually have like one that they're like buddies with, and it's clear that Harold Westerling is buddies with Rhaenyra. Uh, did you ever see Outlander, by the way? No. The, the guy that's playing the King's Guard is briefly an Outlander. He's a great actor. I like, like him in everything I see him in. You're going to like Harold Westerling in the story. You are, that's a, this is a very Spencer-esque character. He is. Um, Rhaenyra walks over to Allison Hightower, and they're clearly very friendly. Allison has come to greet her at the Dragon Pit, and she's got a little caravan thing so they can ride back to the Red Keep together. Allison mentions how fast Cyrax is growing and that she may be as large as Caraxes soon. Deep, deep, deep. Damon's dragon. Pause here for Caraxes. Caraxes is Damon's dragon. What is Sp- Spencer? Quiz. What is the nickname of Caraxes? Uh, something to do with, it, with its red scales, isn't it? Red worm. That's, That's right. It. Yeah, cause, and, and they do a great job because we see a real great shot of Caraxes at the end of this episode of showing exactly that Caraxes is a big dragon, very powerful dragon, but a disfigured dragon. Like we, like a weird, weird, like, elongated snake. Yeah, thing. like super long. Like it looks kind of like a worm. Really short, stunted legs. The legs have little, um, little wings on them. So Caraxes is a strange looking dragon, but he is much bigger at this point than Cyrax. But I think they're trying to set the stage for the fact that Cyrax will will grow about that size at some point. Uh, one, one little fun thing they added in with respect to that scene with Caraxes there at the end of where um, Damon rides it with Missaria, the uh, prostitute that he's quite a bit of friends with. 
whose nickname later is going to be the White Worm. So I like that they gave her almost like a dragon-scale white outfit in terms of her riding on Dragonback, which is a nice little reference to a name that we'll hopefully see with her going forward. I believe she's an entrepreneur. That's what I'm going to call her. Um, <laughs> a self, self-employed woman. Businesswoman. Rhaenyra floats the idea of both of them riding Cyrex together, but Allison shoots that right down. Um, then we see Allison and Rhaenyra ride back to the Red Keep through King's Landing, which looks, I'm going to say, a heck of a lot better than it ever did in Game of Thrones. It does. <laughs> it's peacetime. The Targaryens are ruling. They have plenty of fucking money. Uh, my man, homeboy, has made sure that all the shipping lanes are straight, so they're getting great trade. It's all sea good. Snake. Yeah, the Sea Snake, my, my guy. Um, yeah. I love the sea snake. You're going to hear me talk about sea snake being my guy the entire fucking show. I love the sea snake. But I, point being, Westeros is in a pretty good place, and it looks like King's Landing is in a pretty good, pretty good shape, at least in comparison to how we saw it in all eight seasons of Game of Thrones. It has been seventy years of peace. That was the, just the utter skill of the good King Jaehaerys as he ended the horrible religious civil wars under King Maegor and brought about this just un heard of era of peace upon Westeros that Viserys has to his credit continued to keep going now for nearly 10 years this we when when we stepped into Game of Thrones previously Bobby B had given us basically 20 years of peace and even that was mixed where and at the start of it King's Landing practically burned down yeah but I don't think that Bobby B took as much care as either no. Jaehaerys or Viserys through great and... parties yeah, and little stuff, you know, like trying to make sure that the irrigation system in King's Landing is doing well, the cleaning the streets and stuff like that. Doesn't seem like the type of thing my guy, King Bobby B, would be that worked up about. Yeah, I don't think Bobby B would have necessarily appointed Damon to be to be the leader of the Gold Cloaks, and we get to see how that plays out in this episode. My homie, King Bobby B, love him. Uh, so where do we go to next? Rhaenyra and Alicent walk into the Red Keep, and one thing I think that's a really cool little throwback to later seasons of Game of Thrones is we see that little atrium in the Red Keep. Mm-hmm. It's the same little atrium, I believe, that Cersei had the floor map painted on. It is. It in is. Season 7. And, and with, with that spiral staircase going up that we saw the Mountain and the Hound fighting on as well later on, too. Yeah, and so that spiral staircase, they go up, and Rhaenyra goes in to see her mother, the Queen Emma Aaron. They keep calling her Emma Aaron, not Emma Targaryen. Spencer, why is that? Because she is an Aaron. She, Viserys, unlike so many other Targaryens that we otherwise see or hear about, did not marry a family member. His family heavily married into the various houses of the Vale. But why didn't she take the name Targaryen? Why is she still being called Emma Aaron? I don't actually know the reason to answer to that question. Because they don't fucking give out the Targaryen name. That's why. There we go. Because if because if King Viserys so dies, if King Viserys dies, Emma would have absolutely no claim to the throne. That's that's part of it. Yeah. So Rhaenyra is checking in on Emma, and she mentions that someone has to attend to you. Everybody's attending to the baby, and you know that seems like sort of a sweet little thing that a daughter says to a mother as she goes in and she's checking on her mom. But there is a a deep, unsettling undercurrent of truth in what Rhaenyra is saying, which is that. Everyone, King included, very preoccupied with the baby, the health of the baby. No one seems to give a fuck yeah. about Emma Aaron here, and it is not cool in this podcaster's eyes. Yeah, in the eyes of pretty much all of the realm, even her husband to a certain degree, she is a mobile womb, and that's kind of her role. Shitty. Uh, we have a great line here from Emma Aaron to Rhaenyra, which is really setting 
so it's world building. It's it talking is. about the power structures of this world, how it works in the royal family, and a little bit of foreshadowing about the struggles that Rhaenyra will have in her life. It is you will you will lie in this bed soon enough, Rhaenyra. This discomfort is how we serve the realm. We have royal wombs, you and I. The child bed is our battlefield. We must learn to face it with a stiff lip. Now take a bath, you stink of dragon. One thing I learned in this episode I did not know at all is that dragon has a very particular what? smell that apparently you get when you ride on a dragon. I didn't know that. I, I want to hear a bit. What do you think what, what do you think dragon riding smell smells like? Or what do you think what odor comes off dragons? I honestly don't. Donkey? Let's say donkey. I was thinking like a donkey. I kind of like a donkey musk kind of smell coming off them. It's got to be strong enough that you can tell. But anyway, they make a big point it, of it because it, it's mentioned multiple times. You think maybe it's actually like brimstoney? Like, you know, it's even like a little smoky smell. Like, remember that butcher in Asheville that we walked in that had that kind of, uh, you know, a meat rub smell that would just hit you along with smoke in it? Yeah, maybe it's that. Maybe it's like the charred innards that that's like... You know, having all this, like, the, the ability to produce all this flame, the inside, maybe dragon breath has to really stink, you know? No, it can't it's gotta, it's gotta smell fucking awful. Uh, maybe that's why John, maybe that's why all of the scenes in season eight between John and Danny were a little stilted. Maybe Danny just stunk <laughs> the entire time. Have we considered that, that Danny didn't smell well? This is our new house theory, that Danny had just been doing it enough, she was immune to the smell, and meanwhile, John was just unable to be close to her or act like a normal human in a relationship near her. You ever had that happen? Like you're around a very beautiful woman and you're like really excited and her breath just smells horrendous. I've had that happen before. It's, it's a little, it's tough. I probably would act about like the way that John was acting with Danny. I think that works. I love your ability to rationalize season eight of that show, sir. Yeah. Season eight, not as bad as people think. Uh, we will, I will go to the grave with that. Cut to the small council in Viserys is finishing up a banger of a joke. Oh my gosh. And I said, I think you're looking up the wrong end. <laughs> Corliss Valerian doesn't laugh. Sea Snake doesn't laugh, and he jumps right into it. Mentions that the Free Cities have banded together. Who are the Free City Spencer? Uh, the Free Cities are essentially the seven or so surviving cities of the Valerian Empire. They were colonies of the Valerian Empire. They set up around the, particularly the uh, western coast of Essos, that upon its fall, each tried to stake their own claims to being the heir apparent to its legacy, and has, as a result, fought nonstop wars with each other for the last mm, couple hundred years, with very few of them ever gaining any degree of superiority for very long. Until, really, the event no. that the Sea Snake is now mentioning. Exactly. They've started to band together, which is actually very strange that they're doing that, calling themselves the Triarchy. That's unheard and, of. And they have gone into the Stepstones, Stepstones and islands in, I would say, the southeast part of Westeros. And they've gone in there, and they are ridding it of pirates. So, you know, the first thing out of our king's mouth is, well, this sounds like good news. And Corliss is like, well, maybe. But let me explain something. Uh, the man calls himself Cragus Drahar, and he's styled himself Prince Admiral of the Triarchy, I would venture to bet that this prince title has upset Corliss Valerian. I think he, he, that is upsetting because there is an implication that these people now think they rule the Stepstones. And that's an issue, because the Stepstones are really the interlinking point between Essos and Westeros. They are that series of archipelago of islands that are between the two, and that is very much the Sea Snake's territory. This guy controls trade. He controls the largest fleet in Westeros. He is the Lord of the Tides on behalf of the king. And this guy is kind of starting to step into his territory. 
Yeah, they apparently they call Kragas Drahar the crab feeder because of his inventive ways to get rid of his enemies. Ugh. Then Lyman Beesberry. Remember that guy. OG, OG Lyman Beesberry, remember that name, Master of Coins, speaks up about how much the Gold Cloaks are costing, and he suggests the king's brother Damon, leader of the Gold Cloaks, fill his seat on the council and provide an assessment of his progress as commander of the Watch. So we learn a lot here, right? We learn Lyman Beesberry is a thing on the council, thrifty fella, and that Damon, the king's brother, Damon Targaryen, is the leader of the Gold Cloaks, which is in essence... The police force of King's Landing. We actually get a number tied to the Gold Cloaks this this episode. About they have about two thousand. Which has got about two thousand people in the Gold Cloaks, which is actually a lot. It's a lot more than the Gold Cloaks had in any season of Game of Thrones. And I think that what Lyman Beesbury is talking about here is, hey, we have swelled the numbers of the Gold Cloaks. We are paying a lot of money for this police force. We would like Damon to give us a little bit of a progress report on how he's doing. Yeah, and I think some of, some of the concerns that people like Otto Hightower have later about, hey, this guy's got 2,000 troops under arms in our city. They're also now called the Gold Cloaks because Damon gave them Gold Cloaks. We've basically given him free reign to rebuild and make this organization whatever he wants, and now it's loyal probably to him and him alone. Are we really okay with this? Will that come up later, I wonder? I mean, yeah. yeah. The king then asks if he thinks Damon is distracted, he being uh, Lyman Beesbury, if he thinks Damon is distracted with his current task. Beesbury says, well, I should hope so, considering the cost. He says, well, then let us all consider your gold well invested, Lord <laughs> Beesbury. And it was such a good line. You don't get, you know, I, I don't think Viserys is a really quick-witted guy, but he did he did get one over here on Beesbury, and it did prompt a laugh out of Rhaenyra, who is now filling cups with wine. She's the cupbearer for the small council. It also shows that a lot of people like to dismiss Viserys in this episode or otherwise as being very not a long-term planner. Not a guy that's in control of the entire board or even sees the whole board at any one time. A guy more built around throwing feasts and making people happy rather than the complexity the complex elements of multi-stage politics. However, this does kind of reveal that the guy does have a plan and he knows how to implement it. Objective. Keep my brother distracted. How do I accomplish that? Make him commander of the police. It's a it's a two-stage operation, but he's doing it well. Then we see Lord Corliss refuse the wine. Anybody who listens to the Mangum Talks podcast knows I do not drink alcohol. I am not an alcohol drinker. Mr. So the fact I. that Lord Corliss puts his hand <laughs> over the wine cup, yet again, my dude, I love the sea Every snake. Stage, everything every about way. him. Every fucking thing about him. Corliss does jump back into it. He's not done. Says the king should not give this triarchy much latitude. If the shipping lanes fall, it will beggar the ports. What he, what this is, this is fake medieval for, hey, these fuckers could s- screw up our trade and we could be, I don't know, we could deal with things like uh, lack of raw materials for the production of homes or ships or the garrison or army garrison or it could be, you know, things like food that, uh, our good people of King's Landing could need so he you know he's bringing up real world concerns here and lord otto hightower and is it is that lord otto hightower's music <laughs> he enters the chat he jumps in the king's hand and says the crown has heard your report lord corliss and takes it under advisement which is uh high regal for shut up yeah that thank you for the information i shall now ignore it, Has, it did you did you notice how so the guy who plays corliss valerian Top-notch job so far. Ten out of ten. I don't want to hear anybody complain about this guy because he plays him with this... I don't know how... It seems like it would be extremely hard to do because it's aloof but not stupid. Mm -hmm. 
he like when this gets said, right? When Otto Hightower basically rebuffs him, Corliss has this look that like he it feels like he's floating two feet above the conversation, but he do, but he doesn't seem like it's it's going over his head, right? That it, that he's missing anything. It's just that he's able to just give a real fuck off look very easily. Right. I mean, it, it is the look of a Valerian. I mean, that's one thing we have to remember about his family is that they are Valerians too, just the same way the Targaryens are, and. It's always a certain element of, I float above the rest of you, you are nothing but a servant, so your comments don't particularly concern me. And Corliss Valerian, even more than normal people in the Valerian family would have this, because he is the sea snake. He did go to the ass end of the world and Mm -hmm. bring back elephants and treasures and spices, oh my, and now he is the richest man in Westeros. So, shout out to Lord Corliss Valerian. I think there may also be an element of Otto Hightower's response, too, that goes unsaid, is that, yeah, the realm could be in trouble for this, but who in particular is going to be hurt if this happens? Yeah. You say sea snake. Well, when Otto High, so I really try very hard not to spoil anything in the show for my wife or our loyal listeners, right? Because we will have a segment uh, and a lot of episodes where we talk spoilers. I will say I kind of struggled a little bit with this one because I looked at, I couldn't help myself because of how much I love Corliss Valerian. I just looked at him and I was like, hey, uh, what do you think he's going to do if the crown does nothing about the stepsons? And my wife's like, my wife's like, I don't know. And I was like, come on. Come on. He's gonna go kick, he's gonna go kick some fucking ass because that's what he always does. Like if Lord Corliss Valerian brings something to the small council and he says, I got a problem with this and small council does nothing, that doesn't mean that shit is over. I'm just gonna let everybody know that. I asked if you wanted to help me fix this problem. No, I'll fix it myself. Uh, Corliss, um, Hightower then suggests they talk about the tourney, which seems to be a little bit of a, let's, Let's make this a softer conversation for our king. Yeah. The king gets super excited. Archmaster Malos, who I actually... What was your thought of Malos during this whole thing? It, it, they seem to be channeling a little bit of Ma- Meister Pycelle, I thought, with aspects of his character. Like, th- this is just kind of how Grandmasters inherently come across. I thought he was much better than Pycelle, well, as far as like sure. a person yes. I would trust. Um, he says... Uh, so the king asked uh, Maester Malos if the name day predictions will hold meaning. The predictions you have about when my child will be born, are they going to hold? Because he's kind of planning the tournament around it. And Malos says that basically these things are just guesses. We are yeah. doing our best. We're pouring over the charts and the moon and the geog, all the stuff and the, 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 the astronomy and all this. And we're just guessing, really. And Malos mentions that they may want to delay the games, but Lionel Strong points out... They're all here. Most folks are either here or on their way, so we're not going to do that. The king then confidently asserts that his son... That's right, son! Mm-hmm. He didn't... He, you know, he can't really get, like, a sonogram, you know what I mean? Like, he... Targaryens and their prophecy. He just, boom, son will be born before the tournament is over, and the whole realm will celebrate. Cut to Rhaenyra who very subtly throws a little shade at that comment. Now, one of the things I noticed while I was rewatching this, Spencer, is that the way they do cuts, Brian Condal had to be basically riding shotgun with Miguel Sabochnik for this. The story was very much on point in terms of that. It was so fucking good, because this comment, where it is clear that the king is uber excited about the, ne- the next child, the son, the heir, the this, the that, they cut to Rhaenyra to get a close-up of her face when that comment happens, and it does affect her, and you can see it. It's acted beautifully, it's shot beautifully. Shout out to the show. 
one utterly inconsequential thing I liked about the scene that defies Chekhov's, Chekhov's gun entirely because I'm sure it has no relevance whatsoever. Chekhov's baby is what they're calling uh, Lord, what is it, Balon? <laughs> sure, good name. Uh, those little marbles that the uh, members of the small council... Yeah, what the fuck is that? Th- th- that's brand new to either show or books, but I love them. It's basically the I'm here token. <laughs> I'm ready to talk now. So it, It's a great little bit of world building. They just have those and they have no significance whatsoever, but they're there. I don't like them because I'm talking to my mom about the show. My mom has never read the book, doesn't really know much. But she's like, what about the marbles? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Everybody's talking about the marbles. I love it. I was like, I don't fucking know, mom. And I think she thinks I don't know anything about the show now because I don't know about the marbles. Uh, Marbles, brand new. That's an added thing. Potentially, hey, could be in your segment, Spencer. Things they change book to show. Marbles. Do what I do whenever my parents ask me a question like that. I just make something up to fill in the gap. Because it's anything I just say is as equally accurate as anybody else knows. Melo says they will have no way of predicting the sex. The king says, I am sure it's a boy. He's very sure. Quote, and my heir will soon put all this damnable hand-wringing to rest himself. Cut scene to Harold Westerling, accompanying Rhaenyra to the throne room where apparently her uncle Damon is waiting. Is that Damon Targaryen's music? That's right. We have seen Damon Targaryen for the very first time. Probably, would you say, like, the most consequential character of the first episode? Easily, and probably the most consequential character for at least the first half of this season, if my knowledge of events that happened in the course of Fire and Blood is accurate. So here's something I am springing on you completely new. Oh, God, help me. You know nothing about this. You know nothing about this. Mm -hmm. I am going to, in the course of this recap, I would like to assert the Damon Targaryen, not necessarily a bad guy. I think that people on the first watch of this through thought, well, now we got our bad guy. Mm-hmm. I got multiple people know I love this show. They know we do this podcast. I got multiple texts and everyone was telling me, well, Doctor Who's a real hassle. I don't like <laughs> Doctor Who. I'm not a big fan. And I assert to you, dear reader, that he is not necessarily a bad guy. And as we go through beat by beat of this recap, I am going to present my my i'm i'm going to be the defense attorney for mm-hmm. damon targaryen in this courtroom you ready for it I, I, would you like me to serve as the prosecutor to rebut you on each point sure yeah we can we, okay. we can go back and forth but i i think that there is a strong case to be made that damon while not a good guy necessarily is is not not the bad guy that a casual viewing would lead you to believe are, are, so are we going to judge them as targaryens because you know hitting on your niece normally doesn't fly that well in our world but in theirs it's more of a mixed question based on who's doing it uh well they, they quote hitting on your niece i think is maybe a little bit more subtle in this episode uh i mean he certainly he doesn't like do a lot of like i mean he doesn't i mean you know like i i you know i'm not trying not to be like spoilery but like that's not a big emphasis here. He obviously uh, is close with her. Uh, he's obviously he he's obviously close with her, but I don't think that that this is a, that is a big focus of this episode. I would agree, but it was not so subtle that a lot of people I know that have not read the books or anything else were picking up vibes from that scene. And they wanted you to. They wanted yes. you to for sure. They wanted you to. There's something he that he feels something for her. I think, but he he it doesn't appear that he's acting on it right now. Sure. So. 
As Rhaenyra walks into the throne room, they see Damon sitting on the Iron Throne. Harold Westerling is appalled. God to be good. He, he, he's, right? he's sitting Jamie style on the throne, and Harold Westerling has a very Ned Stark reaction to that. Didn't like that. Yeah, actually reminded me a little Barristol Selmy vibes. Like he yes. was like going to go cut him down or something. Rhaenyra just assures him it's okay. Don't worry about it. He leaves. Harold exits, and she walks up. They talk in Valyrian back and forth. I do think this is something. Really fucking cool between these two characters. Now, is there a weird sexual tension between uncle and niece, and the niece might be a minor, and all of this is fucking sideways, and and it should weird everybody out? Absolutely it should. But is it a cool little detail that they talk Valerian to each other? That also can be true, because that is kind of cool. Absolutely. You know what else is cool? The new Iron Throne, and we got to say that now. New Iron Throne with all the extra spikes thrown around there, they dulled that thing up pretty. Absolutely. Uh, this so the book Iron Throne. Let's let's make let's make that a ten. Mm-hmm. Let's make the show Iron Throne a one for the original seasons of Game yeah, of Thrones. Yeah, I, I give this a solid five. I, I think yeah, it, it it is the perfect five in terms of getting halfway there. They it would be they they would have such OSHA issues that they tried to actually build the Iron Throne. I think this is probably about as close as they can get without a massive amount of CGI. Yeah, Rhaenyra and Damon talk back and forth. They sort of playfully discuss the fact that Damon says he is in town because there has been a, there's a tournament being thrown in his honor and Rhaenyra says well it's being thrown for my father's heir and he goes exactly me and she's like well not really and they kind of back and forth and and you know they're just sort of playfully bantering um, they clearly you know, like you each could, other you can call it playful you can call it creepy you can call it whatever but there is a rapport there he says I got you a necklace he tells her turn around and probably the most creepy part of their relationship displayed in episode one this this turnaround line but she does turn around and she uh exposes her neck so that he can put the necklace on it's a valerian steel necklace great quote here from damon to her now you and i both own a small piece of our ancestry why because valerian steel from valeria they don't make it anymore the targaryens also from valeria there you go and and uh, damon targaryen is the wielder of dark sister the legendary sword that came over during the conquest <laughs> Dark Sister, do we know where Dark Sister is at the start of episode one of Game of Thrones? I mean, it's owned by Damon. Uh, it was, it was the yeah, episode act- one of Game of Thrones. Oh, episode one of Game of Thrones. No, it's not. It's missing last, I, I, best as I know. Yeah, we, we best guess is that it's somewhere up north, uh, but we, we don't know. We think that it probably went with Blood Rivers, but Blood Rivers is basically... Blood Raven. Blood Raven. Brynden Rivers. I combined, I combined the two. Uh, he's sort of a character in Game of Thrones... Not really. And in the books, we haven't seen the sword for sure to know whether he took it with him, and the show didn't reveal. So we're kind of we're kind of in the dark with respect to where Dark Sisters ended up. But in the same way that Jon Snow has a Valerian sword, Daemon Targaryen has one too. And it's a big deal back then, because Valerian steel, sharpest thing in the world, etc., etc. They don't make it anymore. It's super expensive. Cut to mm-hmm. Alicent and Rhaenyra and the God's Wood. I thought this was a cool little sequence here, that there yeah. is a God's Wood with, with, in King's Landing. Yeah, so when they say the old gods in the new, you know, they, they kind of mean it. The other, there's, there's still a little bit of, still a little bit of old god representation in King's Landing. Absolutely. And I want to give some kudos to these two actresses. They have such delightful best friend chemistry in their first episode together. I, it's a really nicely done element of how close the two of these obviously are and how much they are very clearly best buddies completely agree. Allison is trying to learn the story of 10,000 ships. Now, there had been some talk on Twitter that they shoehorn this whole thing in because they're going to do a 10,000 ships show at some point. Uh, eh, I Anybody who thinks that, uh, I would like to 
introduce him to the word uh, symbolism. Uh, when when Renera literally takes a page out of the book of Nymeria, like, come yeah. on, people, they're I mean, giving it to us. I mean, there it, is a reason this story is told. It, we've also heard it before on Game of Thrones for good reason. It's usually viewed for young ladies of the realm that want to be inspired to what they can accomplish as one of the most inspirational stories. We saw Arya constantly reference her direwolf Nymeria. Exactly. We, Danny frequently in the books makes makes reference or homage to what what Nymeria accomplished in terms of basically leading her people across the, the, the narrow sea to a new world and setting up her own kingdom, fleeing the Targaryens. Actually, will point people often leave out, or leave, fleeing the Valerians point people often leave off. So I didn't feel that it was in any way shoehorned in at all. I think you know it has a marketing purpose, but it's also a story that very much fits well not only for a personal inspiration for Rhaenyra, but also. It's a story that if you want to be a person of the realm and particularly have a position of power, it's useful to know how the Dornish were established, given their very separate story from the rest of the people of Westeros. Nymeria, uh, let's call her the Eleanor Roosevelt of Westeros. She's the <laughs> she's the female figure you can look up to that really you know set the tone early for what young girls want to be. So that's kind of cool, right? Okay, I wasn't ever going to make that comparison before, but you made it work. Yeah, of course I did. So. Allison, so they're, they're, Allison is trying to learn this story. She's forgetting things, and Renera knows it, obviously, like the back cool. of her hand. Why? Renera's super fucking smart. Renera then says, um, uh, as they're, as Renera's trying to help Allison, Allison's trying to change the subject. She says, aren't you worried? Aren't you like a little bit worried? Allison says, you, I think you're actually worried because you're disagreeable when you're worried. And, and she thinks that she's worried about, uh, the fact that her father is about to overshadow her with this new child, that her place is somehow going to be missing, et cetera, et cetera. I think Allison's at least a little bit correct. Renera says she's only worried about her mother. I hope for my father that he gets a son. As long as I can recall, it's all he's wanted. Ain't that a so loaded little, phrase. <laughs> little, little resentment there. Allison seems confused as to why she'd hope her father has a son. Renera, I want to fly with you on Dragonback. See the great wonders across the narrow sea and eat only cake. Allison, I'm being serious, Renera. I never just about cake. Good line. Very good. Very playful. Very fun. I would like to say, though, that while I do think there's a hint of truth in what Allison is saying, that Renera is probably a little grumpy right now, I do think their approaches to the situation belie their backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So power is a given for Renera. Yeah. Always Ever since she's been form. Yeah. Since she's been born, the fact that she would be in power, she would have power, she would have money, etc., all that stuff has been a given that she's never had to question. Sure. So she doesn't cling to it, and she doesn't yearn for more in the same way that, say, Allison, who is a Hightower, <laughs> you know, does grow up with this sense of you need to move up, social mobility, you know, see what you can accomplish in your life. And so Allison has a mindset of, man, if you have this bit of power that Rhaenyra has as, you know, the eldest child of the king, you want to hold on to it, you want to cling to it. Whereas I think that Rhaenyra's philosophy is more, she's angry at her father on a personal level for caring more about a son that doesn't exist than her, but I'm not sure she's really worked up about what that's going to do for her influence in court or her place in ruling Westeros. I think that's very true. I think Rhaenyra is very much comfortable with the idea of power and power always being there, given Viserys as her father, who probably has not been, particularly since he's not ever really viewed her as his heir, but also just because it's just Viserys, it's probably never really instilled in her just necessarily the threats that are always imposed upon a king. Probably because he doesn't even want to think about them. 
By comparison, Allison's dad is Otto Hightower, the second son of the Hightower family, whose only reason for having any power at all are the fact that he's handed the king. He's not even going to inherit anything from the Hightower family, practically. So from their perspective, every day you are grasping, otherwise you are falling. Exactly. Yep, exactly. Allison takes off, and Rhaenyra finishes the history lesson four. Princess Nymeria led her Roinar across the sea on 10,000 ships to flee their Valerian pursuers. She took Lord Mors Martell of Dorne to husband and burned her own fleet off Sunspear to show her people to show her people that they were finished running. Rhaenyra then takes a page out of the book. Mm-hmm. Takes a page out of her uh, Nymeria's book and Allison can't believe it. Rhaenyra, fuck the Septa. Fuck the Septa, Spencer. Well, also, another bit of a symbolic thing. Rhaenyra takes the page, but she also gives it to Allison of in case you forget it. That's true. That's a very good point. That Allison also now has a page out of Nymeria's playbook. Cut to the king. He's got a lesion on his back. It's pretty gross. It is. The king claims it's a small cut from sitting the throne. I will tell you this. If you read A World of Ice and Fire, if you read what some of the, the lovely maesters have written mm-hmm. as far as the history that we get in Fire and Blood and A World of Ice and Fire and all of the literature and accompanying things that George R. R. Martin has provided us, there is a common theme that when a ruler is ineffective or cruel or not good for the seven kingdoms, in this case six kingdoms, the throne will cut him yes. very often. The, the, and that is what's happening. The throne rejects those that are unworthy. I mean, in still the rel- not-too-distant memory of people, Magor, Magor the Cruel, possibly the most insane, one of the most insane people to ever occupy the Iron Throne, was found dead impaled like a moth on the damn thing. Which everybody was just like, was he killed or did the Iron Throne just finally decide, mm, no, not doing this anymore? And that's why the scene in season eight where the dragon actually gets mad at the throne. That's this is everyone. Do not ever listen to anything D&D say. The dragon gets mad at the throne and ki- and burns the throne is is great because the throne has always had a little bit of a personification. Mm hmm. Of, of a real person, real personality of having a, an agenda, right? And in this case, Viserys, ineffective king, it's it's fighting back and it's cutting him. Just keep in mind, folks, he just said, don't trust D&D to what they wrote and filmed in season eight. Don't, keep no, tricking no. It. I said, don't listen to them. Don't, li- <laughs> don't the author is dead, Spencer. Mm-hmm. The author is dead. Malos pulls Otto Hightower aside. They are both obviously pretty worried about the lesion. Malos then suggests they leech it, but the other maester suggests cauterizing it, which Malos agrees with. The king very abruptly says, fine, oh. I'll deal with the cauterization, no big deal, and end of scene. Medically, probably a good call, honestly. That thing looks just open woundy in a way they got to seal soon. Yeah, I agree. I think you, I think you give it a couple days of, of air, to, to let it breathe and then you cauterize it cut to Emma in a bath and the king walks in she tells him the bath is the only place where she can find comfort Viserys notes the water is tepid don't they know the dragons like heat Spencer uh, apparently they do on the other hand they're not so certain the baby would appreciate it right now Emma comments that the pregnancy has been miserable and we can tell that I mean the actress is crushing Emma Aaron absolutely destroying it because it's obvious on her face that she's yeah. unhappy every everywhere she moves every time she breathes uh, every waking moment is miserable right now and to boot what we learn in this conversation is that she's already lost five children yeah. so you know she's having this miserable pregnancy with it in the back of her mind the entire time that she could lose this child just like she lost the other five so it's got to be just absolute torture for her i also just can't understand 
I can't truly get in the mindset of a woman during the medieval era giving birth. The rates of mother and infant mortality that would happen in the act of giving birth during that period were colossal. It's like, if you made it to age 18, you were likely to make it into your 60s or 70s. However, before then, almost everybody died before age one or died in the process of giving birth. Yeah, humans would have just died out if it was if I was a woman back then because I'd be just like, no, we're just having, we're, what are we talking about? We're not having kids. Hell, so, I don't know. So even on top of just how many kids that she's lost, the number of coin flips this poor woman has gone through to even survive to this point, I can't imagine the stress that she is going through. Yeah, Emma then mentions that Renera thinks it's going to be a girl. Of course, Renera thinks <laughs> it's going to be a girl. Of course, and she's got a name for her already. What's that name, Spencer? Visenya. Visenya, the king doesn't like that one bit. This family already has a Visenya. Whoop, let's do a history lesson. Visenya was the oldest of Aegon's sister wives. Aegon, Older than when, him. He left, when he left Dragonstone, came over to Westeros to conquer, for reasons we shall get into later. He had two sister wives. The oldest one, the more comely one, mm-hmm. but the more badass one is Visenya. Mm-hmm. She was solely responsible for the conquest of the Vale of Aaron. That's right. Give her shout to one one kingdom. She's the she she'd fucking crush that. Uh, well, I, and I truly love how she did it because it's almost out of character for Visenya. Visenya was Magor's mom, and that should tell you a lot. She was the wielder of Dark Sister. She was a soldier in battle. The way she conquered the Vale was all of their armies of the Vale assembled at the gates of Aaron and were ready to defend it. She calmly flew to the Eyrie and then invited the very young. King of uh, King of the Vale to go ride on Dragonback, and that's yeah, the, ki- the king to be. Yeah, the, the king that king, king in waiting. The, the, the king who had a regent at that point, and effectively, dragon rides were the means by which the Vale was brought into brought into the Seven Kingdoms. And she lived all the way until the reign of the Third Targaryen King Maegor. So there you go. That's Visenya. Uh And you would think that Aegon and the two sister wives would have high place, very high place in Targaryen history, right? Mm-hmm. Emma. Emma mentions Damon, and Viserys says he imagines he'll reemerge for the tourney. He could never stay away from the list. So I guess he's saying that Damon has a bit of a ego. They get into it a little bit about if the child will be a boy. Viserys drops this. Somewhere in here it might be a potential line of the episode. The child is a boy, Emma. I'm certain of it. I've never been more certain of anything. The dream was clearer than a memory. Our son was born wearing Aegon's iron crown when I heard the sound of thundering hooves, splintering shields, and ringing swords, and I placed our son upon the iron throne as the bells of the Grand Sept tolled and all the dragons roared as one. A beautiful thought. Emma Aaron can only imagine, though, a child being born with a crown. Oh, oh. Uh, birth is unpleasant enough, she says. Funny lady. I like Emma Aaron a lot. Uh, unfortunately, she'll very soon know what it feels like to give birth to something with knives. Emma Aaron, here's the thing. Uh, interject me in this world. Emma Aaron survives this, and the king goes on to, I don't know, wander a bit. I'm marrying Emma Aaron. I like her. <laughs> she, she is. She's a winner. She's a hell of a lady. Emma then explains that it's a, it, this is the last time. All right, king? You know, I've done this. You know, she's so she has Rhaenyra. She's had five children die. Now, so this is at least her seventh pregnancy, if my math is correct? I believe so, yeah. Uh, and she's saying that's it. I've lost five. This has been hell. Uh, I'm not doing it again. I know it's my duty to provide you an heir. I apologize if I failed in that, but I have mourned all the dead children I can. I think this is well said, and I don't think there was any room for discussion. And I don't think that Viserys is trying to disagree with her here. I mean, I think this is a very important scene, given what happens later, to show that Viserys, for much as he is dedicated to an heir, as much as he needs to be, he's a king, an heir is everything. 
he clearly does love his lady wife and cares for her, making what seems to come all the more tragic. Cuts Damon with the city watch. They're beating their chest. Clearly fired up. Mm-hmm. The gold Damon cloaks gives, for the first Damon time. Gives us, yeah, absolutely. This is the very first time. This is the unveiling of the gold cloaks. Damon gives a speech about when he took over the city watch, they were mongrels. But now they're hounds ready for the hunts. They all howl. My brother's city has fallen into squalor. I would like to point out the phrasing. My brother's city. Mm-hmm. This is my brother's city. He takes pride in that. Mm-hmm. And it's fallen into squalor. He takes pride in his brother, takes pride in the fact that it's his brother's sister, uh, his brother's city. He says, crime of every breed has been allowed to thrive no longer. Beginning tonight, King's Landing will learn to fear the color gold. And they do, my friend. This continues for a very long time. It does peter out a little bit in the time of Robert Baratheon, but the gold cloaks are a thing for a very long time after this. Can I, can I just say, the restyled version of the gold cloaks outfits looks so much more functional than anything we saw in the mainline series. <laughs> Yeah, gosh, especially from remember season two, they're the gold clothes. They looked, yeah, like immobile. They they looked entirely just you know it was entirely image rather than practicality. Here they got some banging cloaks, but otherwise these guys are suited for war and Damon is taking them into battle. We get a montage of the gold clothes going out into the city. Uh, I think there has been some confusion. If I my social media monitoring is correct among the casuals out there, I think that there was a sense from some people who were maybe watching their phone or playing with their dog or something while they were watching this, that there was indiscriminate killing going on. Now, they very well could have been hurting or killing innocent people, but their intent was to go after people who have committed crimes. Yeah, you, that was the thing here. They, they It was extrajudicial. They, they, this is not how the justice system should work in any system, but especially you know what we know of King's Landing. He's out of line doing it. However, he is not indiscriminately killing the citizens of King's Landing. He is going after criminals. I think that's a great thing to point out. You know what it reminded me of is uh, in the lead up to the Battle of Blackwater, that added scene of where Bronn is named leader of the King of the uh, Gold Cloaks, and they asked him, "Well, how have you prepared for the city for siege?" Oh, me and the boys rounded up all the known thieves for questioning. Uh, no, this yeah. is that. It's like because yeah, because the first thing that happens is a siege is people start stealing each other's shit. It's the the. Yes. It's the cow in the grass, right? If everybody would just take their cow out for a certain amount of time, the grass would be okay. But people can't do that, so that's why they go after the thieves first. And, and that is exactly what Damon is essentially doing here, is that everybody's coming to King's Landing. It's effectively going to be a city under siege from itself. i got to clear out all the known thieves, murderers, rapists, everything else. Otherwise, they're going to cause a scene. Also, I may like violence to a certain degree, and I want to make I'm a not, I, I'm not convinced you like violence, but I, and I will argue that point. But uh, I will say that he does think that this is necessary. And he does take pride in what they're doing. And they, they're, cutting, they're cutting the hands off thieves, they're cutting the genitals off of rapists, and they're killing murderers. And I think that any type of extrajudicial, over-the-top executive police action like this is meant to, in this world, in this society, be preventative measure. And Corliss Valerian talks about that later in the small council meeting. And you mentioned also in our, you know, our initial reactions pod that you felt to a certain degree that certain scenes were HBO checking certain boxes that people come to expect with respect to their shows, or even just like, you know, the stereotyped elements of every Game of Thrones episode. This scene did to a certain degree do a giant check mark next to the necessary gratuitous violence. 
Oh fuck no! This is a this is a C to the A that was the fucking turning. Are you kidding me? The faces being exploded. That was the that was maybe the most gruesome shit that they've done in any of the two shows. I, I'm saying it checks the box. I'm not saying it beats the turning crossed oh, with the burning God, bed. That was so gross. Turning crossed with burning bed may be the single most. There have only been a handful of moments in Game of Thrones I had to look away. That styling together of scenes may be up there. Very tough. Cut to Otto and Viserys walking into the small council room. Otto is fired up about what Damon's done. He says the prince cannot be allowed to act with this kind of unchecked impunity. Damon, sitting at his place in the small council, says, Carry on. You were saying something about my impunity? I'd like to point something out for the jury. The first interaction we see between Otto and Damon, Otto is talking shit about Damon behind his back, and Damon catches it. It's the very first interaction we see. Not the last time we'll see it, too. Damon versus Otto is going to be incredibly entertaining, but I'd like to point out that the first thing we see, shit talking to the king. Mm -hmm. Otto tells Damon he is to explain his doings with the city watch, and everyone sits down and puts their marble on the table. Am am, am I correct that Damon didn't even bother to bathe? He's still, like, almost flecked with blood from from what he just did on the streets. I got the sense he was working all night. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, what? That, that, it's, King's Landing is not a small place. And they, he was probably running mm-hmm. around to all of his different commanders and seeing, you know, the progress. So, yeah, I think he I think he likely pulled a Spencer. I think he was likely up all night. And I, I think he'd been working the whole time. How many wagons did Otto Hightower say, say he filled? Like two full, two or three full wagons full of dismembered body parts? The man was yes. busy. Yeah. So Otto tells Damon he's ex- to explain what he's doing, and Otto tells Damon the watch isn't an extension of him to wield as he sees fit. They are an extension of the Crown's law. Damon fires back that he was enforcing the Crown's law. Damon, wouldn't you agree, Lord Strong? So one thing that Damon does, he's a little bit more astute than people think he is. He starts testing the loyalties of the other council members. Because remember, he has not been in the small council for a long time. So he starts to pick and see who's on my side here. So he goes right after Lord Strong. Lionel Strong. Who's master of laws. Lionel Strong goes... And so non-committal answer from that idiot. Otto goes on, making a public spectacle of wanton brutality is hardly in line with our laws. So Otto's starting to get high and mighty here. Damon points out that the tournament is coming. They don't want to have lawlessness to abound during the tournament. Damon then hits Otto hard, tells him, if you bothered to leave the safety of the Red Keep, you would learn that the small folk, that might seem like a really derogatory term to your casual ears, in the world of Game of Thrones, that's simply what they call the citizens. Small mm-hmm. small folk in King's Land, view King's Landing as lawless and terrifying. So Damon kind of educating Otto here. He's saying, hey, look, you sit here in the Red Keep in the Tower of the Hand all the time. I'm telling you that down on the streets, people are scared because of this wanton violence that we see all over the place and the criminality of King's Landing. Damon says that the city should be safe for all its people. Viserys, I agree. Potential line of the episode. I just hope you don't have to maim half my city to achieve it. Damon, time will tell. And, and it's important to note that Damon actually is, among the various lords here, much more inclined to just go and hang out with the small folk. That they, they even, if I'm correct, they even got they even got the nickname on point, Lord Fleabottom from just the Lord sheer Fleabottom. from just the sheer amount of time he spends in the poor areas of uh, King's Landing. He does so for his own reasons, but he's actually in many ways better liked among the small folk than he is with the lords, the lords of the realm. He would likely be a better ruler of King's. I'm not sure about Westeros, but of King's Landing than Viserys. Uh, Corliss then sticks up for Damon, says, "Look, we installed this guy to promote law and order, and the small folk should be scared of the gold cloaks." Damon immediately recognizes that his support says, thank you, Lord Corliss, for your support. So he's keeping a little tally in his head. 
Lionel Strong, Corliss Valerian, I support Damon. Got to keep track of that Lord Beesbury, though. I think yeah, I think we're not we're not giving him enough credit here. We'll see what he's we'll see what he's capable of later in the race. Uh, Otto then, well, yeah, well, Luke Beesbury hasn't weighed in yet, right? Yes, no. Otto then says, if only the prince would show the same devotion to his lady wife as he does his work, your grace. <clears throat> so here's the thing: the way this conversation plays out, everyone thought Damon was an asshole. Yes. But I would like to point out that Otto is the one that went low and personal first. Mm-hmm. He had no br- business bringing up Damon's relationship with his wife. It has nothing to do with this situation. It is absolutely just a personal attack on Damon. And the fact that Damon fires back and gets personal with him is simply a tete-a-tete. Like, I don't know what to tell you, Otto Hightower. Don't sit and attack a man's marriage and then expect to not be hit back. Like, fuck you, Otto. Like, Otto, here's the thing. I'm staking my claim right now on the ground. I do not like Otto Hightower. I do not like the man, and I am going to be anti-Otto Hightower throughout this. He, he's a, I just feel like he gets, the casual is going to watch this and go, man, I can't believe he said that about his dead wife, but it's like, what fucking business did Otto Hightower have in weighing in in Damon's marriage in an open small council meeting? I mean, he, he, this is a weird thing to say, but he's Tywin without Charles Dance's charisma, which... That's an interesting thing. To it's ever interesting say. you say that because I just told my wife before we started recording that I felt like Otto Hightower was was um, Tywin without the army. Well, Tywin without the army, or Tywin without necessarily he's Tywin without a lot of features, actually. Uh, but in, in, but re- there is some Tywin there for sure. That would mean he's hand to the king, so sure. But in reference to what you said, this is basically like you know playground rules of where someone says your mother, and at that point you're just free to throw hands. The guy started it. He he, 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 he really did start it. And Damon continues. Finished it. He says, he says, I think my bronze bitch is happier for my absence. Ooh. It's funny when he said that, Viserys goes, oh, God, he's talking about his wife. Because you can tell Viserys back. knows what he thinks about his wife. And he's like, uh-oh, this is going to be trouble. Uh, Otto uh, then tries to – I'd like to point this out. Oh, yeah, you, you go ahead if you had something. J- j- just a comparison point so people have a connection back to Game of Thrones. Remember, everybody remember Lord Royce from – Yeah. Bronzeon Royce from the show? Uh, Damon is married into the Royce family. That's what he means when he says his rune bitch. Whew. All right. Otto then, Otto then, in a completely out of line comment, starts to lecture Damon about his marriage vows and says, tells him Rhea, his wife, is a good and honorable lady of the Vale, and he should be upholding the, the marriage vows that he made in front of the seven and the gods and the old and the new and the, like double middle fingers down the pipe to yeah. this guy. So Damon then finally has enough. He explains that in the Vale, men are said to fuck sheep instead of women. <laughs> I can assure you that the sheep are prettier. Lord Beesbury does weigh in here. Dear me. Dear me. Oh. Too much for poor Beesbury. Oh, my gosh. Otto then starts to continue to lecture him about these vows, and Damon, boom, finally has enough, cuts him off. Well, I'd gladly give you Lady Rhea, Lord Hightower, if you were in want of a woman to warm your bed. Your own lady wife passed recently. Oh, shit. Oh, Otto up angry. Damon, did she not? Perhaps you aren't ready to move on just yet. Viserys says that Damon makes sport of provoking Otto. He shouldn't indulge him. So, I'm just going to say, again, defense attorney for Damon Targaryen, he was... Otto Hightower walks in the room talking shit about him behind his back, immediately starts attacking what he did, doesn't give him a chance to explain himself, and then... Out of nowhere, blindsides him, starts talking about his marriage and not upholding his marriage vows and lecturing him about that. Otto Hightower deserved the punches he got 
ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I'm perfectly happy with this statement. I also say it is a testament to Damon's power in the situation that Otto Hightower, the guy that started this, is now required to apologize to the king for standing up to a guy that just insulted his dead, that just made reference to his dead wife. Yeah. That shows yeah. the relative balance of power right here, right now. Yeah, well, it's nice to be the brother. Viserys tells Damon that they have spent a lot of money building up the city watch. They want the laws enforced. But any spectacles, like the night before, will be answered. Damon smirks. I do not believe Damon believes his brother here and says, understood your grace. I think Damon accurately predicts, and at least you can you reasonably count on, that his brother is going to pay attention to this for about the next ten minutes. And then is going to get angry at Damon again when Damon does it again. Damon's going to pretend to apologize again and repeat. When Damon walks out, we get a great shot of Corliss kind of getting a kick out of Damon. Mm-hmm. He kind of like, kind of, it's like, it's like a small little smirk, like, oh, this fucking guy. Like, he, he kind of enjoyed him. Uh, if the series then, then, when Damon leaves, this would have been nice to say in front of Damon, by the way, mm-hmm. says, well, King's Landing has been in decline since his grandmother passed, grandmother, the good Queen Alicine. Mm-hmm. This new city watch might be a good thing. So even the king is saying, Shit, well, this might have been a good idea. Like, Otto Hightower is on the wrong side of this for this council. Absolutely. Uh, I will point out that Otto Hightower is not necessarily wrong, that we would prefer if the Gold Cloaks answered to some rule of law and, you know, sent people through the proper court system and didn't just, you know, execute justice at the will of Damon on the street based on whatever knowledge they're bringing to bear. It'd be better if they not do that. But at this point, at this time, he is just, Otto Hightower is completely outvoted. Well, because he 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 has a he has that point to make, which is a great point. But he can't make that point in a targeted way because of his dislike about Damon generally, and so it just balloons into something else. And yeah. and the king the king then get, it all gets muddled for the king, and the king's just like, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it is a good thing that the city watch is like keeping order and stuff. Like he's not able to make his targeted point because he makes it personal so fast. Exactly. If he'd actually focused on the issue of this wanton violence in the streets is going to cause greater problems going on and going forward, and we can't go down that particular track right now. We need to make this a much more official system for fear of what effect it's going to have in terms of long-term implications. That's a harder argument to dispute than you're not fucking your wife. Yeah. Yeah, which has nothing to do with anything. Cut to a scene of Damon actually fucking someone, Masseria. She asked him, you know... Surprisingly he, important character going forward. Keep track of Mas- this woman. Yeah, keep keep track of Masseria. She's a very important character. Damon's having sex with her and is unable to finish, so she asks him what troubles him. And he, she offers him to bring in another, maybe mm-hmm. a few maidens, maybe one with silver hair. Ooh. Ding, ding, ding. Remember that, that, she, that her go-to... When old boy's having trouble in the sack is, do you want to see one with silver hair? Do you want to see one that looks like your family? Very good point. I thought it was both that and maybe even a little bit of an in-joke of where in the books she looks more than vaguely Targaryen herself because she's from Lys. So I think that may have been almost like an in-joke there as well, too. Very, very well could be, or maybe a little foreshadowing. She didn't ask him what troubles him. She offers to bring in... uh, 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 Tells him... She uh, tells Damon... uh, like she basically becomes uh, cut me Mick. Like she's basically like the corner guy at this point, and says, "Look, you are Damon Targaryen, rider of Caraxes, wielder of Dark Sister. The king cannot replace you." But Damon looks troubled. Mm-hmm. Like here's the thing: for all these people that think Damon is just this mindless monster who loves violence and he just doesn't give a fuck about anything and he's just nothing but a chaos agent, after he has this spat with his brother, where his brother's chastising him and his decision, and he's he has this whole situation with the small council. 
it affects him in the bedroom, and he looks clearly shaken. Like, he's he wraps the fucking blanket around his head. I mean, this is a very intimate moment with Mysaria. Uh, uh, I think what they're trying to say is that he really lets his guard down with her, and what we see is that when his brother is unhappy with him, that affects him. It's it's important thing to keep track of Damon of where basically every story you can say about him is true. All of it's true, but it means that this this is a very complicated character we're dealing with here. And a key thing you've got to keep track of at all times is he actually is a guy that really does love his brother and really yes. does want to be loved by his family. And he really does love his family, and like the fact that they had this spat. He's having a bad night, man. It's it's affecting him. It, and I think it's important that they showed that. I think from a certain degree that when he went out there with the gold cloaks on that evening, brutal as it was, as Damon as he was about carrying out these events, he was doing it because he wanted to do a good job for his brother and a good job for his city. First thing he said, my brother's city has fallen into squalor. First thing out of his mouth. Yeah. I think that's important they wrote it that way. Cut to Viserys at the tournament. He's opening the tournament. I, I would say, Spencer, he's doing a... Okay, job. Well, how would you score that speech to start off uh, this thing? It's okay. It's a four and a half. It, it, it is a four. It, it gets the job done. It gets the job done. Absolutely. But are you inspired, Spencer? Do you want to put your, do you want to don your armor and hop on a horse and, and go joust? I mean, how the fuck does this guy inspire anyone? Well, th- this is the category of thing. Have you ever been to like a really great party and the host is called on to do a speech and he just says, welcome, everybody have fun, but it's still a great party. This is that. Oh, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking it's the, um, like, you know, when everybody, like, all right, like, so Spencer's going to do the prayer tonight. Good food, good meat, come on, let's eat. Like, one of those, like, it, type things. It's exactly that, yes. Where it's like, oh, man, he, okay, so he's not, he's going to do, like, a stock thing. Okay, I got it. And this is not, like, a real one. But, okay, I got it. But, kudos to, kudos to Viserys. Not the best with the speeches. Man knows how to throw a great tournament. It does look good. I do, you know, I do think this is a great, you know, juxtaposition with season one of Game of Thrones where they they did have a tourney and <laughs> the difference here is massive and and rightly so. I mean these tourneys are supposed to be big spectacles. I mean Harold Lionel Strong was talking about how that, you know, all these people had come from all over. I mean we see Starks, we see Baratheons, so we know they're coming from the north, the Stormlands, we know they're coming from the Riverlands. So, you know, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Rhaenyra sneaks into the back. King doesn't like that at all. He doesn't like that she's late. King announces that the Queen has begun her labors. Ah, Spencer, was it a little weird for you the big cheer that she'd become her? She'd like started her. It just seems like a really like invasive thing. Like he's like, hey, she's she's starting to crown, and like everybody's like, woo, yeah. It's like, god damn, like give the lady like some space. Well, keep in mind, probably like a hundred people there even heard what the hell he said, and everybody else just you know saw the signs saying cheer. So they may not all necessarily invested that much in what he said. But I'm probably all drunk too. Uh, this is an event that you show up with at least a three drink minimum. Yeah, they're probably drunk. We see the first knight get unhorsed. He has a shield with an archery sig- sigil. Spencer, do you have any idea what the archery sigil is? Oh, I fucking combed the internet. I flipped through a world of ice and fire. I couldn't figure out what the archery sigil was. I don't. Did you ever find an answer? No. I'm looking that up while you're talking. Well, good luck. He un- he's unhorsed by a Sir Cole. Of the, quote, Stormlands. (laughs) Yeah, sure. His shield is orange with blue dots. Orange with blue dots, Spencer. That kind of looks a little... Huh. I'm not sure that looks like the Upper Six Kingdoms at all. Cut to a Baratheon asking for the favor of Princess Rhaenys Targaryen Spencer, the queen who never was. Oh, and that is an interesting moment. Record scratch. 
It, it, it was clearly a record scratch moment there in the booth. Rainus looks, you know, very much amused by she's this. She's cool. She's cool, yeah. She, she's cool. She's gotten this before. It's, it, it's somebody that she knows for well. It's one of her kinsmen, I believe, even. The rest of the room is going, oh, no, he didn't right now. Uh, I'll tell you this. We get very little Rainies in this episode, but what we get of Rainies, I am convinced that she would be at least six times better king than Viserys. Uh-huh. Uh, that's my that's my mathematical. I've done the uh, a beautiful mind this thing, Carrie from Homeland. I've done all the math. Exactly six times better than Viserys as king. I'm right there with you. It was never going to happen, but just she's several, dope, several of her she's little off comments that she makes in the booth here while she's, she's watching the tournament cool. are great. She's so good. She's so, and like how she handles that queen who never was thing. She just walks up. She's smiling. I mean, her shoulders don't move. I mean, she's just cool as fuck. Uh, Otto points out that the king could have the tongue of the Baratheon guy for that, but the king says words can't change the succession. Let the tongues wag. I also just, just for me and my little headcanon, I love any time the Baratheon bucks the Targaryen. I just love it. it just makes me happy. You know, I think it may even happen again in the future, don't you think? Cut to Rhaenyra and Alicent gossiping. Rhaenyra says that Lord Stokeworth's daughter is promised to the young Tarly Squire. So we're getting some names here. Stokeworth, we know Tarly, of course. They're to be married soon as he wins his knighthood. Allison says best get on with it. Allison then drops this bomb. You ready for it? Mm-hmm. Heard through the grapevine. I heard that Lady Eleanor is hiding a swollen belly beneath her dress. Oh, shit. It- oh, shit. Is it just an archer in a field? Was that was that the, was that the shield? It's no. It's like a it's like a guy shooting an arrow and a blue background, and that's the only thing that's on the on the sigil. Closest one maybe House Tarly because it's a red archer on green, but that still doesn't seem like it fits it perfectly. I don't think that's exactly right, but it could be. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe it's Tarly. Uh, Sir Cole then unhorses the breath. That I mean, Tarly would make the most sense because they do mention Tarly here in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Sir Cole then unhorses the Baratheon in a shocker, an upset. I would say, I'd say Sir Cole from the quote Stormlands had to be a plus six hundred here. So you're betting, you're betting six, you're betting one to win six. He's that much of an underdog. So whoever had money on Sir Cole went, won a lot of money. But, sure. And we see that really even in the next scene of where Rhea returns to, you know, her, her personal bodyguard in the Kingsguard and asks, who the hell is this guy? And he basically just says, he's affiliated with House Denarian in the Stormlands and he's kicking ass. That's about all I can tell you right now. Yeah, he unhurst, he unhurst unhorsed both the Baratheon boys. Now, what we do know of the Baratheon line all the way from Ori's Baratheon all the way up to my man Stannis the Manus Baratheon is that the Baratheons don't fucking play. So if you've you've unhorsed, you've knocked both the Baratheons off their horses, that is cause for some conversation. Then the Targ banner is dropped, and in comes the knights, and Damon gets to pick who he wants to face in. Guess what, Spencer? I think he's picking a high tower. So he's picking the high tower. That's right. That's so, bitch. his games are not done yet today. <laughs> I love it. And when he picks Otto, he picks Otto Hightower's son to boot. Oh, his firstborn son. And when he does, I love the camera shoots to Corliss Valerian, and that same kind of like <laughs> this fucking guy, like that this fucking guy look that he gave when Damon was leaving the small council. It's amplified here. He's getting such a kick out of what Damon's doing. You know. I think it's possible the two of them may be buddies later. You think it's possible, man? He seems to like him. Renera uh, also is really amused by her uncle and his antics. It does seem to me that during the course of this, that Renera is following her uncle's every move. Mm-hmm. She's watching him. She's rooting for him. She's laughing along with him. She's 
gasping when he gets in trouble. She's, she's, you know, it's sports team and she's rooting for her uncle. Of note, um, is Damon, of course, wins and knocks the high tower kid down, but has to hit the fucking horse to do it. Damon, come on, buddy. He, I think of all the things that Damon does in this entire episode, to me, this is the most objectionable. Cause the horse is basically dead and the guy is hurt to shit from doing yeah, this. Yeah, it was a mean thing to do to the horse. I mean, like everything else he does, I think there is a justification or reason for it. Except this, this seems just mean. <laughs> Sir, this is how Damon do. And he pro- no, no, this it, is one time, one time. No, no, it is not. You could yeah. say you could say Damon is a complicated figure, but Damon is also a guy that will kick the dog and laugh about doing it. Uh, I disagree with that. Uh, he he does this because they, they pass the first time and the and the high tower kid hits him, and there is no way in fucking hell that Damon is going to lose to the high tower kid after that interaction he just had with Autobrathian. So he had to had to beat him in some way. Uh, sure, yeah, justify it however you want, man. I'm not justifying. I'm giving reason. He should not have done that to the horse. That is, I'm not justifying that. That is bad. Mm. Damon oh. then comes up and talks to Rhaenyra, and he then asks for the favor of who, Spencer. <laughs> Allison Hightower. <laughs> the salt. The salt he's putting in Otto's open Woo. wound right now. Woo. And she gives it to him. Yeah. Allison, Her what is wrong right with there. you? What are you doing? This is a case of Otto is not confiding in his daughter enough. He needed to let her know that's the villain for us because she should not have given him the well, favor. But I don't think she knew. I don't think she was aware of the, the beef between the two. I mean, she both didn't know. Also, could she have reasonably said no? Really? I mean, it's Damon, it's the prince of the realm. It's until maybe the next five minutes, arguably the heir to the throne. I think she could have, she could have done something like, I am already favor, I am already given to so and so or whatever. She could have played it off. This was the simple way to go about it. I also agree. Otto has not fully immersed his daughter yet in his political planning. He did not love that. Oh, yes, it will. Then we see the king get some news, and whoop, 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 he leaves. He goes to Lady Emma, and she is a struggling. The maester tells the king that the baby is in breach. Breach basically means the baby sideways. Not, not coming through. Not coming through the right way. Not not good uh, even in this day and age. Particularly not good then. They give her as much milk of the poppy as they can without risking the child. And milk of the poppy in this world is the narcotic. So, you you know, you can only give so much narcotics to... Like, if you get, if you have a baby in you, Spencer... Which would be weird. But if you had a baby in you, and I gave you enough narcotics to knock you out, that's likely enough to kill the baby because of how small the baby is. So really the amount that she can take in is just an amount that the baby can handle. So it's not nearly enough to deal with the pain she's handling. Nothing is good that's happening right now. And, you know, basically the Grandmeister says, she's strong. She's got odds. They're getting increasingly shit right now, though. Yeah, I mean, I felt like he was just trying to make the king feel better. He's like, yeah. look, she's fighting. She's a strong woman. I mean, you know, he's 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 hyping the king up. I, I I've been, a, I might I might regret this, but I was kind of impressed with Melos during this entire thing. I, I, um, I had some mixed views about him, but I don't think at any point he gives the king bad advice. And we even saw with the scene when when the other doctor said, eh, "I think this is better," that he probably goes, "Okay, he's the specialist. Let's do that." Yeah, uh, Picel would never have done that, right? So that, that that's a differentiator, that that's scene fair. right there. There's a back and forth. So this scene is really cut with the jousting, and specifically the jousting between Damon Targaryen and Sir Christian Cole. Their battle is legendary. Then back at, yeah, that's a very legendary battle, and it goes back and forth with Emma trying to have the baby, right? Uh, we Clearly symbolism here between a boys playing at war and a woman on her own battlefield. And we see some people in the audience. So before that, that whole sequence really starts, there's two knights fighting, hacking away at each other. So in essence, this is something that might be a bit of a surprise to 
to the casual is that in this world, Spencer, if you and I joust, you knock me off my horse, I can call to continue the fight. Mm -hmm. And that is acceptable. And you, if you're a man of honor, if you're not bitch made, you got to get off your horse and fight me. So that's what these two knights were doing. And they actually go, they fight to the death, which I would not. If I was in charge of the games, I would not recommend. And when this happens, Rainey says to Corliss, and the day grows ugly. Yeah. Cor- Corliss, potential line of the episode, I wonder if this is how we should celebrate the birth of our future king, with wanton <laughs> violence. Yeah, I, I love Rainey's line here, where she's basically pointing out that all, you know, it's like Catelyn's line back in the show proper, is that all of these guys are knights of spring. They have no concept of what war or violence is really like. They are just playing at it. They've been living through utter decades of peace. And so when you give them an opportunity to throw hands, they're going to go overboard in a heartbeat. And we're watching it happen. Yeah, you can think of Rainey's as Catelyn Stark without the, the Jon Snow handicap, without that sort of blind spot that... that that she had, and also with a nuclear weapon, right? Rainey's has a, has a dragon, so she she's does. got a nuclear weapon. So, yeah, that was a great line there. I, I got it for you if you want me to quote it, because it's a potential line of the episode. It's been Please. 70 years since King Maegar. It's in these nights are as green as summer grass. None have known real war. Their lords sent them to the tourney fields with fists full of steel and balls full of seed, and we expect them to act with honor and grace. It's a marvel that war didn't break out at first blood. Very astute observation as you yeah. pointed out and, and even beyond just simply the uh, aftermath of the jousting probably this tournament's just gonna have a general melee too and not everybody makes it through the general melee even when there are rules they do they do have a melee scene that's yeah. that all the face busting that's the melee right. and melee folks don't know is basically they just say all right who's in the melee we're gonna have 10 people and, and just, it's just go. 10 people who fight to the death what? and it's then, a crazy fucking thing it's not supposed to be the death but it's with real weapons and violence well, happens and these it, guys it is it, it's fight to the death unless you yield. Yeah. Unless you say the word yield, it is fight to the death. Rules of honor generally say people are supposed to survive this because they're the lords of the children of the lords of the realm. But in the moment, violence happens. Oh, they're not a lot. There are, there's a lot of people dying from this one, and it's it's a very strange tourney yes. in that respect. And I think there's a lot of foreshadowing, right? About there's peace, there's stability in the realm. But these are in, this is an inherently violent population. At yeah. least a part of it and, is, and they're ready to go. They're fucking. They got fistful of seed and whatever balls full of whatever whatever the hell Rainey said. They got that, and they're ready to fight. That's why I say, a I really like her. I yes. just like her tone. I like how she operates. I like her presence. But B, she's definitely foreshadowing some events yeah, to come. It's a lot of violence that's been in the, in the realm, and it hasn't had an outlet. And you can see the pressure is starting to build off rules of decorum. One thing to comment on here, the fact that Daemon Targaryen is wearing a mask with just an open face is the most Daemon Targaryen thing ever. For our listeners, for those of you that are eager to go jousting, don't ever do that. It is a Very bad idea. idea. However, Very bad idea. Damon Targaryen, the dude totally might. Yeah, it's not not smart because uh, you can get Damon. even if you, even if you don't get a joust right through the freaking face, splinters go everywhere. That's what they do. That's the yeah. reason that you typically just have the most narrow of eye slits possible for this thing. But Damon Targaryen. So then we get this scene that I'm talking about, where you have the the scene with Emma and then Damon and Sir Kristen Cole. Damon against Sir Kristen Cole is probably one of the maybe top three or four most famous things that ever happened in a tourney ever, right? Because Damon, I think at this point, is pretty much undefeated. Sir Kristen Cole is coming out of fucking nowhere. The interaction between the two of them gets very interesting later on in the story. And back to the birthing room, Malos tells Viserys, like, hey, look, we could potentially save the baby 
but we'd have to kill the mother. We'd have to do like a C-section. We've got to go in through the belly. Mm-hmm. And this this world does not know how to allow a woman to survive a C-section. If they cut in the belly, she's just going to bleed Can't out. Can't stop the bleeding. And they can either do that or they can just leave it to the gods with the baby in breach and Emma unable to get the baby out. Now, here's the thing. The, the overall decision to try to save the baby when you have both of, you know, you have a situation where Emma and the baby are likely going toward death is not necessarily a bad overall decision. It's just Here's what it, here is what is bad is that no one consulting her. No one thought to give Emma any agency over her own body in this situation. That's horrendous. That's inexcusable. Now, there also are situations in real life when the person giving birth is out of it to the point that the partner really does have to make this call. Healthcare but, power but of that, attorneys. But that's not what they're portraying because no. Emma is aware of what's happening. When they strap her down, she knows they're cutting into the belly and she's going to die. So they needed to consult her. That is the, the decision is not to me the, the original sin here. The, the, this base sin, this thing that Viserys will never be able to get past, is that he didn't sit and talk to his wife about it before he decided it. Didn't even think to consult with her. Just it, it, it could have been a very simple conversation to have with her on the subject of it. She's right there. She's not, not doing anything else other than giving birth right now. You can talk with her about this. Doesn't appear to even cross his mind. Even when he's holding her hand before it's about to happen. Doesn't he just says, they're going to take the babe out. That's all he says. Don't worry. Don't worry. They're going to take the babe out. Now, she knows as soon as they start strapping her down what's going to happen. And her last moments on this earth are pure terror. Begging and, she, and fear. Pure terror. Just to escape this moment. It, it's like, yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you that the ultimate decision that if they're both going to die anyway, let's try to save one. It's a minimum excusable, if not justifiable. The idea of not bringing the mother into that conversation at all is criminal completely foreign to our world it's this it's you know Viserys is a very I think a very sympathetic character but he has this this unexcusable can't get around it can't move it can't justify it I have to have an heir this thing that he did because this tunnel vision about the heir that he did to his wife that it, that it will always carry carry with that character. It will always be the asterisk to Viserys. Yeah. Always. Uh, I, I will also say the scene. We can't really call it a C-section necessarily. There was never a Caesar in this world to necessarily they just call it that. Um, it but over. that scene of that happening while the turn the battle between Damon and Kristen Cole occurs, one of the most cringe-worthy, just gratuitously violent things we've seen on the show. It's a very really? effectively filmed scene. I don't want to say gratuitous in the sense that you know it's doesn't fit into what they're trying to do but man was it hard to watch really hard to watch and they wanted it to be hard to watch so let's cut back to the the jousting so damon goes up against sir Kristen cole sir Kristen cole hits him does not necessarily knock him off the, it's kind of strange doesn't knock him off the horse but knocks everything he's he's flayed out on the horse yep. and he's just still connected so he disconnects he falls calls for a sword <laughs> let's go we're gonna keep fighting just, so just go ahead Two things from a visual standpoint. I love how fast the tournament is taking place and how quickly they do the lance changes. I, you almost never see that in tournaments f- that are filmed in movies for fantasy settings or medieval settings or otherwise. That's lovely. Also, just from a humor standpoint, watching Damon grind the shit out of that rail when he gets half knocked out of the horse, just like the entire half leg of it, is just a hell of a visual to watch. Yeah, it's something. Um, and he's, he's tough as, he's tough, man, oh, yeah. because he's, he's hanging there and his first thought is to get, you know, get, get, Get that strap off. Pull Dark Sister and keep going. You fall and he pulls Dark Sister out and he he starts fighting. And here is my read on the fight between Sir Kristen Cole and Damon. 
I think how do you score the date that it's a not it's a nine to an eight, right? Until it isn't right. It's nine to an eight. Damon has Sir Kristen Cole on the ground beat, but it is it. It's not a ten performance from Damon, and it's super close. However, Damon before Sir Kristen Cole says yield, he does not make him yield. Mm-hmm. Starts gloating, yeah, and ah, uh, waha, and he and he. He does, as you mentioned before, he has a connection with the people of King's Landing, and I think he wants to be loved by the people of King's Landing because I think he thinks he's going to be king. Yeah. So he, he's he's doing this whole thing, and Sir Kristen Cole knocks him down, and you know pins his arm down against the ground. And I watched this like three times, Spencer, and I could not figure out what the fuck was going on. Here's what it seemed to me happen: is that Sir Kristen Cole holding this ball and chain up over his proper his flail, shield, he's going around. Yep. Sa- says yield, yield. Yield, and Damon never yields. I, I didn't see Damon yield. Did you hear him see him say it? He never said yield, but he dropped his sword. He like let go but, of the sword in his hand but, that's pinned. But that is important, right? Because yes. the fucking ego of Damon, Absolutely. he would not say yield to Sir Kristen Cole, and I imagine Sir Kristen Cole will file that away that he did not say yield to him. Because if it's anybody else, Our, if it's not this fucking the prince of the whole goddamn world. He probably would have bashed his head in for not saying yield. Sir, but Damon you, can get away with it. Sir, are you suggesting that Christian Cole and Damon may have a future story going forth between the two of them, that they may have a certain degree of a relationship going forward? I just want people to take note of that slight. Oh, I, I don't, I, nev- I don't even know what you might mean by that, sir. And I am the defense attorney. I am the defense attorney, the acting defense attorney for <laughs> Damon Targaryen. And I will say, on your own client. I will say that this was out of line. He should have said yield. That was out of he, line. He, he did still do it, and he did offer the guy a smile, recognizing he'd been bested. Sure, he did, but not saying the word is elite. It's elitist because if you're anybody else, it gets you killed. Yeah. Uh, Raina and Alicent both go up to greet Cole, and he asks for the princess's favor. Oh, he takes off his mask, and what do they see? By God, he's Dornish. Oh, a Dornish bastard of House Denarian here. Now, Dorn, not part of the Seven Kingdoms. It's Six Kingdoms right now. Dorn is not in the fold. Mm-hmm. Continue. Now, let's go all the way back to the age of Aegon the Conqueror. Why didn't Dorn join the fold? What there, there, there must be something that happened that caused the Targaryens to say, ah, fuck them. What was that, Spencer? Well, the Targaryens certainly tried to invade, and they destroyed essentially everything. They burned the thing damn, damn near to the ground. However... The Dornish kept resisting. They kept refusing to surrender until the Targaryens were attacking one of their last strongholds, and they happened to put a massive ballista bolt into the eye of the dragon of Aegon's younger sister. The dragon died. The sister Rainies. Went, the sister Rainies went missing. And then thereafter, upon many assassin attacks on Aegon in King's Landing, a message was delivered to him. A message from the Dornish. A message that we don't know the contents of. Other than, after receiving that message, Aegon ended his war with Dorne, and they've just never invaded again since. Nope. Nope. And they're... It's a very interesting relationship between the Targaryens and Dorne from this point forward, but right now we will say that Dorne is not technically in the fold, and Dorne is the only... Anybody in Westeros that ever killed a dragon at this point. Uh, they killed Meraxes. They did. And the Targaryens will try to invade them again without success. And it will eventually be a work of marriage and diplomacy that will bring them Look into the that. realm. Under Look da- at that. Under Darien the Good. Another good. We only get a few goods in the, in the course of Triple, the Targaryen history. 
to bring them back into the fold. Rounding out that triple D, right? Mm-hmm. Defense, diplomacy, development. Mm-hmm. And Darren. <laughs> yep. And then we, that's a good, that's a good lead in. So then we have the baby. The baby's pulled out and Malo says, Hey, congratulations, your grace. We got a baby here. And <laughs> the mom is dying, either is dead or dying, right? Dead there or dying year. right there. And he looks up and he says, Well, the name that we picked was Balon. Cut back to the tourney, and Corliss walks out quickly, as does many others, and Renera seems to know that something has gone wrong with the birthing. She seems, it's it's that look of like, oh, fuck, don't uh, tell me. Uh, just by the way, did, did you think that Kristen Cole and Renera were making certain eyes to a certain degree when he asked for a favor? Did you so here's what I noticed. Things? Here's what I noticed. What did you notice, sir? I noticed, and I'll tell you this, if you have 18-year-old Lee in this world, I would be... Knocking on the door of Princess Rhaenyra. I would be right first in line for Princess Rhaenyra. So I say this as a Princess Rhaenyra fan. She was uncle, uncle, uncle. Oh, God, that's a cute guy. Ooh, ooh, ooh that's a cute guy. Ooh, who, who, ooh. Who is this Spanish dude on horseback that just asked for my favor? Head on a swivel, Princess Rhaenyra. She is all over the place. That's what I was seeing. Hmm. So as Melos is holding the baby and the king is... Giving the name Balon, we get just a second of a cough from the baby and a concerned look from Malos and a cutaway. After that, we cut to the funeral. Mm-hmm. They're all standing there. And in Westeros, it is typical to burn your dead. Particularly among the Targaryens. They burn their dead. Well, and the North, this is something that the people in the North... <laughs> for different and, reasons. And the Targaryens, but yeah, exactly. For, they both share is that they burn their dead. So they have a funeral pyre, and we see a human... Presumably the mother at the top of the funeral power, and then breaking our fucking collective hearts as the camera sinks down, we see the child. A tiny, uh, the t- baby ba- baby did not survive either. The tiniest little burial shroud wrapped around something. Baby did not survive either. So that's the funeral power that Viserys is looking at, his wife and his dead son. And as this is happening, Damon walks up to Renera and says, they're waiting for you. And they slip into Valyrium. And she says, this is in a Valyrian conversation, she says, I wonder if during those few hours when my brother lived, my father finally found happiness. Potential line of the episode. Damon, I would like to point out, as defense attorney for Damon Targaryen, he not only is clearly emotionally affected by the scene here, he is, uh, he is not, he's upset. He's gone to Rhaenyra to give her comfort, to say, hey, you know, you you got to do this. You got to you got to give the command and then talks to her in Valerian and says your father needs you now more than ever looking out for both Rhaenyra and Viserys. Something that Viserys will accuse him of not doing later. Looking out for both of them in that moment. And she says I will never be a son. He also Matt Smith has done beautifully with this role. He deserves all credit in terms of bringing the complexity of Damon to the screen. I love the empathy that is radiating out of this guy during this moment. I mean, he hates it. He hates it for them. He, he is just feeling their pain and is trying to stand for, stand with them as best he can. And the words that he says to Rhaenyra are the exact thing that both she needs to hear in this moment, but also the support that he's desperately trying to get for his brother right now. So, yeah, he he's doing something for his brother that his brother did not even know Never knows that he does, which yeah. is telling Rhaenyra, I know that 
there's obviously resentment you feel against your father for how much he focused on, honed in on this idea of having a son and having an heir. But he needs you now. You got to step up. You got to help him now. She says, "I never will be a son." She walks up and she starts druka, the word die in her throat. She stops. She composes herself. She waits. She looks at her father. She's. I think she's waiting for some sort of nod or something. Her father gave her nothing. He's in his own finally, head entirely. She finally says, "You know what." I'll do it. She turns, and with that, it, there looks to be like this fire in her. That Danny she says, Dracaris. And when she says that word, she says it, if you if you, you juxtapose her saying that word against Danny, Danny says, Dracaris. Mm-hmm. She says, Dracaris. Why? Because she speaks proper High Valyrian. Mm-hmm. Danny does not. Danny grew up being taught by her fucking numbskull brother. She doesn't barely, she barely knows the word. Now, I will point out, this is a change from the books. That there is a universal command from Targaryens to, ha- to to all their dragons to tell them to to rain fire, and that it's Dracaris across the ages is a change from the books that is not it, present in the books. Simplification it's something, for the Watchers. Yeah, it's simplification for the Watchers. Something they're doing to connect. I like it. I like the idea that there's one universal well, word it, that they all use. I like that, but it's not in the books. It's also, I'm perfectly willing to believe that if you have two Targaryens that are willing to pick the same word for their dragons with respect to this, Danny and Rhaenyras. I'm willing to believe those two were joined across time. Perfectly possible they just each pick their own word. Pick, pick, happen to pick the same word. Yep. Uh, so, then... Credit also to the dragons acting. I never thought I would see a dragon look sad and trying to, you know, fit the emotional tone of the situation. But Cyrex does that quite well right there. Well, you know, dr- the dragons are supposed to have an emotional connection to their rider and they... I, you know, obviously Drogon did with Danny. Mm-hmm. When Danny was upset, Drogon was upset. When Danny was mad, Drogon was mad. Same thing. Same thing here with Cyrax and with uh, Rhaenyra. Uh, I think that Cyrax feels the pain of Rhaenyra. And they they did display that well with the CGI. Mm-hmm. Cut to this is immediately fucking after the funeral. Auto high. This is doing auto high. This is things. this is we have we we left the funeral. I got. I grabbed one of the crab cakes from the wake. They're still I got a in little the car. Quick, quick spritzer. Um, the, the 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 limousine's still here. The funeral yeah. people are still here. We haven't even paid the tab yet for the funeral. Mm-hmm. And Otto pulls them into a small council meeting. Bring your marbles, folks, because we got to talk. He says, "Look, I hate to bring this up. Oh, I yeah. wish I, know, I didn't have no, to. This isn't the oh time. my god! But I'm going to. I'd like to talk about your succession, mm-hmm. Corliss." Very quick to point out, I'm not sure why we're talking about succession. The king has an heir. His name is Damon Targaryen. Melo speaks up and says, if Damon were allowed to remain the uncontested heir now, when it seems, because this is, this is more important now than it was. Why? Because Queen's dead. Because there's no immediate hope for an heir, right? The king, the king is a widower. And Melo says, Damon as the heir could destabilize the realm. Corliss very astutely points out the realm or this council. Spencer, I have a question for you. What is your thoughts about Otto having this conversation right this fucking second? I think in some ways it's very intentional on his part. He wants to catch uh, Viserys in an emotionally vulnerable state, maybe under hope of being able to manipulate him easier. If so, he's read the situation horribly, but I think that might be a certain element of his uh, thought process here right now. Otto then goes off about the gold cloaks, how Damon now has 2,000 soldiers at his back. Viserys points out that Otto gave him that army! You, I wanted to name a master of laws, but you said he was a tyrant. I wanted to make him master of coin, but you said he was a spendthrift. Finally, Otto says, hey, look, here's the deal. I really don't want him to be fucking anything, okay? Mm-hmm. All of that was, basically, he tips his hand. He says, oh, that was fucking bullshit. I just don't want him to be around. It was all half measures. I didn't want him to be around. 
The king then yells, Damon is my brother, and he will be on this council. He will be on my council. Miller and, says that Damon... Go ahead. And who's listening while this is happening? Yeah, Miller says that Damon can keep his place in court, but if the gods send some further pain to Viserys, either by design or accident, Viserys cuts what? him off, calls it out, what? and says, What are you saying? Does design, what are you saying? That my brother would murder me? Take my crown? Then we cut to Damon. The reveal. Damon is in a closet listening to this entire fucking proceeding. Mm-hmm. He knows this is happening. He knows this conversation is happening now. He knows the timing of the conversation. Viserys says that Damon has ambitious yes, but not for the throne. This prompts a chuckle from Damon. <laughs> Brother, Otto, how little you know me. Otto then has a wonderful line. I don't oh, like Otto yeah. Hightower, but I, I oh, nominate yeah. this potential line of the episode. The gods have yet to make a man who lacks the patience for absolute power, your grace. Beautiful line, because it's 100% damn true. Melos then points out that the king could name a successor. Strong says, well, who else would have a claim? Otto then, I'm going to do it, I'm going to say it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to say it, I'm going to do it. Well, the king's firstborn child. There it is! There it is! There it is. He broke broke the fucking mold. He broke the patriarchy. He implicated that maybe, just maybe, we should consider Rhaenyra in all of this. You know, being the king's oldest child and all of that. Lord Strong has a big problem with this. Big problem. If order and stability so concerns this council, then perhaps we shouldn't break a hundred years of it by naming a girl heir. Fair point. Fair point. Otto says that Damon would be a second Magor or worse. Otto Also probably is, fair. I do not believe that. I do not believe and remotely believe that Damon is equal to Magor. That is an unfair I, characterization. I agree. Otto. It's also... It, it, Otto is always going to focus on the worst aspects of Damon's character. He's not wrong. Those aspects are there, though. I think I think he is. I don't I don't think there's a parallel to some of the some of the but that, like I don't think Damon's low goes as low as Makor. Fair. I don't think it. I don't think he, he goes is that impulsive low. and violent, as Otto calls him out here. In this, I'm scene. not sure that he is. I'm not sure that he's violent. Uh, it the, is the duty the, the, of this council. Two wagons of dismembered penises beg to differ with you, sir. He was he was instituting. He was he was. Being, he was being police at that point. A he justification was, for violence is still violence. That doesn't mean he likes it. Well, he would, that, that, that's an assumption on your part that he likes it. He did it because he was trying to control his brother's city. It is the duty of this council to protect the king and the realm from him. That is, This is what Otto is saying. I'm sorry, Your Grace, but that is the truth as I see it, and I know the others here agree. I venture to guess Otto's telling the truth there. Mm-hmm. Viserys says, I will not be made to choose between my brother and my daughter. Great line, except that three minutes later, he chooses between his brother and his daughter. It's also one of the things of, I will I will not be made to choose. It's like, actually, that is your sole job. You are king. Succession is the only reason monarchies exist, so it's clear and well-defined. You actually have to do this immediately. Corliss then says that maybe he doesn't have to. There are others <laughs> who have a claim. <laughs> Such as your light, why, this is, this is Lionel Strong. Such as your wife, Lord Corliss, the queen who never was. Corliss points out that Rainey's had a very strong claim. I would also agree that Rainey's had a strong claim. Stronger than Viserys, but that's old news, right? The only child of Jaehaerys oldest son was Rainey's. And she's got a kid. So maybe that kid has a pretty good claim. They all dismiss that. Finally, Viserys has had enough. He yells, my wife and my son are dead. I will not sit here and suffer crows. That come to feast on their corpse. I love Good the line. shout out to the line "Feast for Crows," which is the what, fourth book by George R. R. Martin in the Song of Ice and Fire series. Good book. The series gets up and leaves. Cut to Otto. He finishes a scroll. This is a different scene. Right? Mm-hmm. Cut to Otto. He's in his. He's in the 
out to Tower of the Hand. He finishes a scroll and says, send a raven to Old Town straight away. Quick question for you, Spencer. What the fuck was that about? Uh, well, Old Town is the largest city in all... Depending on the time period, usually viewed as the largest city in all of Westeros. It is the ancestral seat and home of House Hightower. What the nature of this message is, who could say? But I doubt he's sending it to the Citadel that happens to be there. I would guess is that he's sending it to his family and has some plans in motion. Allison is brought to him. He hugs her. Ask how Rhaenyra is. Allison says, well, she lost her mother. So it's not very good. She asks how the king is. Otter says, very low, very, very low, very low. Mm-hmm. Otter then suggests Allison go see him. Whoa, 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 whoa. In his chambers, in his chambers, in his chambers, in his chambers. And, and, and maybe where your mom's dressed. So this is where he feels Tywin to me. <laughs> because there, this is, there is no pretense. He is not hiding with Alicent what he is doing. He says the king is now free. He he doesn't have a wife anymore. Mm-hmm. So he needs to be uh, consoled. Yeah, and you are going to be the first one to go take a crack at it uh, of trying to be queen number two. That's that's what we're doing here, and he doesn't really hide it. Now, my question for you, Spencer, does this make does this change your opinion of Otto Hightower or the opinion that you had of him up till this point? Uh, purely based on the show or based on my knowledge of the books? Based on the show. Based on the show. Purely based on the show. This, I, I can say from my parents, for example, this is the moment they saw that, oh, shit, this guy has pretensions to power. That he's not just the hand of the king that has disagreements with Damon. This is a guy that wants to actually rule the realm, and he's using his daughter for that purpose. And that's where people draw the Tywin comparison. Sure. Um, I would say that Otto Hightower is a sleazy bag of shit, and he's pimping out his daughter. Yes. And I don't appreciate it one bit. And Cut to Alicent going to the... Go ahead. How do you feel Alicent feels about this, based on her reaction to her dad? Hard to read. She's very hard to read. She doesn't seem comfortable. She seems like she's having a certain moment of realization about her dad that she may not have yeah, had Yeah, but before. she doesn't... It's not the same as when Ty, Tywin told Cersei she was going to marry the um, the kid from the, the Reach. The, the uh, Tyrell kid. Yes. Remember when, when Tywin yep. told her, you're going to marry... Loris. Tyrell, Loris Tyrell. And, and she was like stomping her feet, screaming, I will not do well, it. You will not make me. Allison just goes stiff up her lip. Okay, I'll go. Allison has all the loyalty and all the subtlety that Cersei had never at any point in her life possessed. Yeah, apparently. Uh, so she goes to the king in his chambers. The king's kind of like startled to see her, but he is Viserys. He's a nice guy. So he says, yeah, what do you want? You know, basically <laughs> sit down. And he's, he's working on this... Absolutely grand sculpture of Valeria, like it's like it's a middle-aged guy working on his model train set in his basement. So, how did you know that was Valeria, not King's Landing? Purely from the episode notes, because I, I, it looked almost when I first saw it like it was a, a grand um, model of of uh, Harrenhal. Yeah, it looked to me like King's Landing. I didn't know, but I the fact that he's doing this modeling in his chambers is just very middle-aged white guy. It's just cool. Yes, uh, it, it makes cool him model. feel. It makes him feel, you know, more like a dad, kind of like personable. Mm-hmm. That he's got a, you know, he got a thing. Anyway, she comes in, she's got a book, and she says, "I know you like your histories." And he kind of perks up and says, "Well, that's true. I, I do like history." And she, I love that they give her this line because there's obviously they're they're going for a connection here between the, the king and Allison, as weird as that is. But she says, "You know, when my father, my mother died, she's really reaching here mm-hmm. because she's getting personal with him in a way that." He could tell her, he told her, he could tell her, get the hell on. But she says, when my mother died, everyone spoke to me in riddles. And all I really wanted was for someone to say they're sorry. Beat, beat, looks at him and says, I'm sorry, your grace. 
And that really seems to resonate. This is the first person we see him actually connect with. Everybody previously, he was either just going through the motions or he was entirely wrapped in himself. When she says this, he looks at her like a person that he's never seen before. And that's notable going forward. Also, yeah. just credit to you, good lord is Viserys the frumpy middle-aged dad of Westeros. That's just what his role is. Now, a question for you. How? What do you think the age difference is in the show? The book is different. In the book, Alison Hightower is older. They've aged her down well, in the well, show for some reason. I, I actually do the math. They've aged up Rhaenyra based on based on based on the math that I saw. More so than they've aged out Alicent. But in the, we'll say strictly in the show. Well, they have still aged out. They, they've had to have aged out Alicent because she her her in the book her age difference with King Viserys is like. 20 years or something. This is at least 30. They have compl- As they often do with the parental characters in the show, they've aged up both the parents and the kids at the same time. It's what they've done. Okay. But yeah, okay. I very much agree. He's at least 30, maybe 35 years older than she is, based on the looks. He's like okay. mid-late 40s. She's all 18. So that's pretty fucking weird. Um, all right, then we see Damon at a whorehouse, but he certainly doesn't look happy. I'd like to point something out here as Damon's defense attorney. He just heard that fucking conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, now he's in this whorehouse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, he does. He looks distraught, upset, not happy, and some drunk says he's going to speak. I didn't see Damon say, "Hey, clear the clear the way." Someone I volunteered talk. him. Yeah, someone volunteered him to talk. Basically, hand him a microphone. At this point, God knows how many drinks he's had. He's had an awful day, and this happens. So there is a cut to. The small council and Otto is reporting to the king, which is a wonderful filmmaking decision. God, does this make this scene so much more effective? We don't actually see Damon say it; we just see people describe it and react to it. Agreed. I hundred percent agree. He explains last night Prince Damon bought out one of the pleasure houses on the Street of Silk to entertain officers of the watch. Now he, I would like to point out something that Otto is doing here. Prince Damon commands two thousand militia. Yes, paramilitary. He rents, even yes, he rents out bars and whorehouses and pulls places to play games. He has to. I'm sure he does this very, very often. What does Otto point out? Pleasure house. He goes right to that because he's trying to characterize him as an evil guy who has his bad morals. Exactly. So he pinpoints that, and you notice when he does it, Renera seems a little affected to hear that her un- her uncle was in a whorehouse. Mm. Like she seems like a little shaken by that. Damon gets up, because we're cutting back to the scene the night before, and says, The king counsel long rude my position, but try and pray as they might. I'm not so easily replaced. The gods give just as the gods take away. Cut to Otto. And he says he toasted Prince Balin. Buckle up, Spencer. Say it, man. Styling him. Say it. The heir for a day. Oh! Oh, it's both brilliant and evil. In the background, we see Rhaenyra's face drop. She, what do you think Rhaenyra is feeling in that moment based on the reaction the actress gives us? I, I think a couple things. From a certain degree, like we've said, I think she has idolized her uncle in that kind of way of where she only knows him so well and he's kind of fun and dangerous and exciting. And this is a moment, a bit of realization of a certain aspect of darkness or just cruelty in his heart that she maybe didn't expect was there. And she also knows, oh my God, how is my dad going to take this? I think that she's disturbed, disappointed, but kind of angry. She looks mad mm-hmm. that he said this. He, she does not look like that she's very pleased with her uncle. No. 
Damon is then brought into the throne room. So then we jump ahead in time. We see Viserys sitting on the throne, sword in his hand. Which is a very weird look for Viserys. Crown on his head. Damon says, you cut the image of the Conqueror, brother. Viserys cuts right to it, says, did you say it? Damon, I don't know what you mean, Viserys. You will address me as your grace, or I will have my king's guard cut out your tongue. So Viserys is very angry here. Damon gets quiet. Viserys says, the heir for a day. Did you say it? Damon looks sheepish and says, we all mourn in our own way, your grace. Uh, Counselor, did you want your client to say that line right here, right now in his defense? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that he's he's touching on the truth here. Because him going out and getting hammered drunk is probably how he deals with some of this stuff. I mean, like, he know, he's, he's Lord Fleabottom. Flea bottom. He goes out to the bars. Like so, there is a there is a. Of course, there's a little bit of bullshit to the signs trying to get out of this bad situation. But there's also a nugget of truth there that that is what he was doing. Now, I will say this: Dame, the king then goes on to say, "My family's been destroyed, and instead of helping me or Renera, you choose to celebrate your own rise, laughing with your whores and your lick spittles." Now, I got a problem with these lines because we saw. Damon tried to help Rhaenyra and her, her, his brother, her yes. father, at the funeral. Um, we know that he was feeling pain for them. And then he, he gets all high and mighty about, you choose this moment to worry about your place? Well, dear king, sir, not 12 seconds after the fucking fire of the pyre was out, you were in a small council meeting discussing, you know, the, the discussing the, 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 um, succession and this guy Otto who you stand here now and tell me is such a great and honorable man and so much more honorable than I'll ever be what is the first thing he thought about when your wife died was the succession and he wanted to talk about it and specifically wanted to stiff arm me out of it so this getting high and mighty about oh man I can't believe you were thinking about your position in this time of crisis well you were literally sitting in a meeting talking about the exact same thing right after the funeral. So don't don't get all high and mighty about that aspect, sir. Yes, but this is also Otto Hightower doing proper Otto Hightower things of where, A, he set up the meeting to put the thought in the head that maybe Damon's not the best idea. B, the next thing he goes with is Damon doing a really dumb thing that in his mind is him almost kind of usurping while also being a monstrous asshole to the family. And C, while Damon's getting drunk at a bar... He's sending Allison into the room to say how sorry she is for the king. This has all been set up by Otto Hightower very well to get across the reaction he wants from Viserys. Hundred percent, he is. But what I'm trying to point out is that, like, as bad as the line "air for a day" is, and it is bad, mm. there is it is not pure evil. No. It's rooted. No, no. It's rooted in the fact that yes, he was out drinking because he was sad and he was just bummed and in his cups. And two, he did see and hear them have this entire conversation about trying to ditch him as heir right after the funeral ends. So this, I'm sure he got absolutely like jaded about the whole thing. As soon as he heard all that, he's like, how could he think that, that, that there was some sort of grace period where we don't talk about these things? Like they were obviously talking about it and discussing it. So should he have said heir for a day? Absolutely not. Does it make Damon within this context, make Damon a absolute awful person in the villain of the story? I don't think so. Mm hmm. I, I, I'm willing to perfectly agree with you there. Uh, I think he could have done himself some favors by humbling himself a bit in this conversation, sure. which sure. Damon is just emotionally incapable of doing. 
But I'm also willing to agree that the heir for the day was not in any way meant maliciously to his brother, and he seems like he has the good grace to at least regret it a bit. He's here, he clearly regrets it, but he does break because Viserys is being hypocritical here in his in his criticism of Damon by saying, "How can you how can you be thinking about your own rise in a time like this?" It's like, well, Viserys, your own hand, who you keep telling me is such a great guy, that's all he can think about right now is his succession. So there's a little bit of hypocrisy in it. I think it breaks Damon. He fires back, and I think there's a. a a deep-rooted resentment here that finally bubbles to the surface. And he says, Ten years, you've been king not once have you asked me to be your hand. Viserys goes, Why would I do that? Which is pretty fucking offensive. And Damon has to explain, I'm your brother, you dummy! Mm-hmm. And then Damon tries to make the the case for why he would be a good hand. Uh, he basically says, Look, you're weak. Sorry, brother, but you are. Fair. And your, and your counsel leeches off that weakness, and they get what they want also out fair. of you. And I wouldn't fucking allow it as your hand. Probably true. And I, be- I believe that. I I think it's a fairly... My opinion is that it's a fairly good argument for why he should be king. Spencer, how did it land with you? Or not a hand of the king. How should it, how did it land with I you? I think everything you said there was accurate. It does not mean that he would be a good hand of the king, though. I think everything you said was true. And I think he could bring things to bear that would directly help his brother. And I think he would aspire to help his brother. Does Still doesn't mean that we've seen anything to necessarily say that he has the full emotional and ability range to be a hand to the king. Now I will say as a book reader, this is, this is not a, I'm, I'm doing my best not to spoil things here, right? Yes. But as a book reader, I will say this was a fist pump cheer situation when he said, I see Otto Hightower for what he is. Viserys, <laughs> Viserys says an unwavering and loyal hand and Damon says, I can't. And all the book readers everywhere yes. roared as one. We all roared as one, mm-hmm. cheered. Yes, fuck Otto Hightower. Uh, a second son who stands to inherit nothing he doesn't seize for himself. This is a point you made earlier in the podcast, Spencer. It, 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 he does not have rights to his family land, his family gold, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He is only going to get what he makes in, in his life. Also, it's something that I don't even think Damon realized when he said it. That statement also applies to Damon. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. He's the Prince of Dragonstone. He's not going to inherit Dragonstone, and he's only the Prince of Dragonstone as long as he is the heir. And that could rapidly leave him behind. I thought about this. It's not a bad point, Spencer, but I don't think it's comparable. Because when you are a second son in the in the Targaryen family, you do have things that you will inherit. You have possessions, you have rights that like a typical noble family second son would not have. I don't, I don't think it's a directly comparable thing, especially especially now when he has control of Dragonstone. It's a matter of scale, but it means he'll not, he'll never have the throne. He'll never have the power of King. And once he's supplanted his heir, he'll never even have that potential too. He'll always be comfortable, but his power will be secondary at best. I mean, you, I mean, you're taking it as, as like gospel known, two plus two equals four, that he'll never be king. But in this moment, before this conversation, it looks pretty good that he might be. He's significantly sure. younger than his brother. His brother's wife is dead and it doesn't, he doesn't have a male heir. It looks pretty good for Damon until the <laughs> conversation. Five minutes from now, let's reassess. I agree. I agree. But I'm saying he'd, it's a different situation than what what uh Otto Hightower is is feeling. I mean, he has much more trappings of power, much more things in, uh, that he's going to get. Uh so yeah, I had that thought too. I was like, isn't it this a pot calling the kettle black? But I'm like, well, not really because of all of the things that the Targaryens have. Man, I fully acknowledge your point. 
I, and I think to a certain degree, my point with respect to Damon is playing into the idea that by the end of this conversation, he is truly just a second son and without anything resembling the position that Otto Hightower and his gang have fought for. And I don't think, he certainly doesn't see it coming, and I don't think he even entertains the idea of how much this line can apply to him if he loses the loyalty and support of his brother like he's going to in this conversation. Well, at least for right now, his brother tells him, you are no longer the heir. I've chosen another heir. I'm sure that Damon, having heard the conversation that happened in the small council, he knows exactly who that's going to be. Uh, and he, Viserys tells Damon, you need to go back to Runestone. You need to go back to your wife. Get out of here. Now, Spencer, odds to you. Betting man that you are. You love to gamble. Love to roll the dice. Absolutely. Play the cards. Yeah. Uh-huh. Percent chance would you put on it that our guy Damon does exactly as told, goes back and just warms the bed of his wife? Can we do less than 1%? Can we do fractions of percents right now? Negative 10%? I uh, mean, it is low. He is not doing that shit. I mean, just just the pers- just the fact of who he takes off with should answer that question entirely. Fuck no. Damon takes a step toward him, but the Kingsguard, woof, I step in. Love that little bit of filmmaking there of when Damon takes the step. The Kingsguard <laughs> are almost just like robots in terms of just mechanical, all in unison, shift. And we just have the noise of them doing so. And that is so by the book, because in the book, that is exactly how they're explained. The, you know, because the Kingsguard, like any organization, goes through good periods and bad periods. And Jamie kind of talks about that a little bit Bob, in the main series. Bobby B was the worst, honestly, sadly. But, yeah, but I mean, they, they are described at their best, which they are at their best mostly during the Targaryen reign, uh, an early Targaryen reign, as being like that. Like, you take a step for the king, woof, it's right there. Like, it's not a question, and they are the best in the realm at it. Um, Damon says, your grace, looks down, walks away. He walks away from his brother. Viserys seems pretty hurt as Damon walks and leaves. And as he leans back on the throne, what happens, Spencer? Pricks himself. Pricks himself, symbolic of how hard it is to rule, which is apropos of the moment. And leading us only further to question, how worthy is he of the throne? What state is the realm in as a result of his efforts? They, he just sent away the man who should be king, in my opinion. Cut to Viserys. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's put Damon on the throne. Cut to Viserys in front of the school of Beler- skull of Balerion. We talked about this in the re- reaction podcast, Spencer. Let's gush over it a little bit more. They finally gave us the scale, the scale that we deserve uh, for Balerion's head. For all those who are uninitiated, Balerion the Black Dread, Aegon's actual dragon. He... The sister wives assisted. They certainly did. I don't mean to discount their Play the key role. But... Who conquered Westeros? It wasn't Aegon. It was Balerion the Black Dread. It was Balerion going around to the Seven Kingdoms, scaring shit out of everybody, that actually united the the Six Kingdoms under Aegon's rule. And I love that we get the scale of his skull. Yeah, it was the largest of the Targaryen dragons ever. They never got bigger than him. The oldest, too. This was the only dragon, the only thing upon, upon the Aegon's invasion of Westeros that had ever seen Valeria before its fall. That's how old and massive and powerful this thing is. When he landed, and this dragon lived long enough that Viserys was its last dragon rider. Viserys actually, that's another cool part about it, is that he's standing in front of the skull of his dragon. Yes. The last rider of Balerion, and for him, the last dragon he ever rode. He never, he never became a dragon rider again after Balerion nope. died. So, he him before this, this shrine, in many ways, he's honoring his old friend here in his darkest moment. Renera gets there. Viserys starts out by saying that Valerian was the last living creature to see old Valeria before mm-hmm. the doom. Your point. He then asks her, when you look at the dragons, what do you see? 
she pushes back. It's like, Dad, I haven't talked to you since the fucking funeral. What is your deal? He says, no, stop. This is important. When you look at them, what do you see? And she acknowledges that without the dragons, they would be just like everybody else. Here's the potential line of the episode. Everyone says Targaryens are closer to gods than to men. But they say that because of our dragons. Without them, we're just like everyone else. So Rhaenyra, I do think she has queen potential. Why? She's cutting right through all the propaganda, all the PR, all the bullshit, and pinpointing, we rule because of the dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Viserys says, the idea that we control the dragons is an illusion. They are a power man should never have trifled with. One that brought Valeria its doom. If we don't mind our histories, it will do the same to us. A Targaryen must understand this to be king... Or queen! Bum, bum, she looks up at him, Viserion, then says that all this time he's wanted a boy and he's missed what's been right in front of him. Uh, you think? Mm. He says, you're the very best of our mother. I believe, as I know she did, that you could be a great ruling king. So this is Viserys now saying, look, you're my, na- you're my heir. Mm-hmm. All right? But then we see the lords bending the knee to her. Uh... We start with Lord Corlys Valerian. I think that's important to note that Sea Snake is the first one to bend of the major lords to bend the knee that we see. Very important. Mm-hmm. And Viserys says it's no trivial gesture. The iron uh, gesture, the Iron Throne, is the most dangerous seat in the realm. Then we see Hobart Hightower of Old Town bending the knee. I believe he's the old son of Hightower. He's uh, the Otto's the, older brother. Otto's older brother. Yeah. Uh, then we see Damon and Caraxes, and Mysteria comes up, and Damon has her touch Caraxes, so they're going to ride Caraxes together. So now, from now on, uh, Mysteria actually rides Caraxes with Damon. Not not solo. No, Caraxes not solo, would not tolerate but with that. Damon. But he's no, at least allowing himself would on like, board. Yeah, Caraxes would likely kill her, yeah. But he has to do this, you know, it's almost like bonding. me with my cat, right? Yeah. I've got a really fussy cat. She's bonded to me. Nobody else. If I'm going to get that cat to even deal with somebody, I have to be there and do the introduction. In the same way, you know, he's having to do the introduction with Caraxes and Mysteria. Yeah, when I was over at your house just last weekend, that when that cat was near me, you were having to A, drug the cat, and B, coo at it constantly to not try to disembowel me. Yeah, my my cat likes me and nobody else. It's very, very dragon-esque. It's uh, bonded to me and nobody else. It's not, not super healthy for the cat, but a big ego boost for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we see Ormid Baratheon bend the knee, but Spencer, did you catch? Mm-hmm. Did different you catch words. the? Did you catch the different words and the hesitation? I, and did you catch that? Uh, Rhaenyra notices it very clearly. I, Bormund Baratheon, promise to be faithful to King Viserys. <laughs> that is Rhaenyra, answering part of that question. <laughs> Rhaenyra notices that and scowls. Viserys. Then we enter. Into Spencer's favorite part of the episode. Viserys tells <laughs> Rhaenyra that Aegon did not just conquer Westeros out of ambition mm-hmm. and lust for conquest. He did it not a lot, not for ambition alone. It was a dream. And just as Danes foresaw the end of Valyria, this is something I want to give you a lot of credit for. So I misspoke when we were doing our reaction pod. We were all... Hot and bothered and excited from the episode. I said that uh, Aegon came from Valeria. He did not. Uh, it was Aene, uh, Danes. Mm-hmm. Danes had the dream. About 100 years the, earlier, the Targaryens uh, went of, off. Of the Valerian doom. And he left. And he all the Targaryens got made fun of by the people in Valeria for leaving. And going <laughs> this little shit, this little shithole out west. Like, why would you go to like a, a island of rocks? Well, then the doom happened. And they were the only people left with dragons. And the explanation here is that they... that. 
the reason for the conquest is not just the that Danes foresaw the end of Valeria. Aegon foresaw the end of the world of men. Mm-hmm. Tis to begin with the start of a terrible winter gusting out of the distant north. Oh. Cut to Rickard Stark <clears throat> bending the knee. I love that cut. Storyboarding. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. It cuts right to the Stark bending the knee. Uh, and then we have uh, potential line of the episode. I'm going to say it all. Are you cool with it? Go on ahead, man. Your favorite part of the episode. Aegon saw absolute darkness riding on those winds, and whatever dwells within will destroy the world of the living. When this great winter comes, Rhaenyra, all of Westeros must stand against it. If the world of men is to survive, a Targaryen must be seated on the Iron Throne. A king or queen, strong enough to unite the realm against the cold and the dark. Aegon called his dream the Song of Ice and Fire. Viserys then grabs the hilt of the dagger. Recognize the dagger. dagger. (laughs) Dagger should be, uh, it's the dagger that eventually, 176 years later or something, kills the Night King. Mm Mm-hmm. This secret, it's been passed from king to heir since Aegon's time. Now you must promise to carry it and protect it. Promise me this, Rhaenyra. Promise me, Ned. Promise me. Mm-hmm. Now, Spencer, uh, you, you, you laid into it a little bit in the reaction pod. I trust that you've had a chance to marinate, to become much more positive, and you want to recant all of those statements and talk about how great this is. So I'm going to give you the floor here to do that. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a testament to just how powerful or how freaking new this revelation is that a prior little off comment that Viserys makes that we should never have trusted the, the the dragons they led to the doom of Valeria or something like that, which is also a hell of a new thing to say. He says oh. a dra- he says yeah he says drag dragons were the reason for the doom and dragons are a power that man should not have trifled with. So that's a new statement. We've never had somebody say that before. But I but 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 I have a question for you. Did he really mean that dragons directly did it, or that was it the fact that man trifled with the power of dragons that like disturbed the gods enough for the doom, like an indirect cause? I mean, his words imply to mean he's being metaphorical. I mean, his literal quote okay. is: "The All idea right. that we control the dragons is an illusion. They're a power that man should never have trifled with. One that brought Valeria to its doom." Brought. Okay, yeah, okay. That I interpret that as being metaphorical. And the dude all... Among the various Targaryen kings, there's a few that come across as being more than a little bit anti-dragon. Viserys is one of those. And several of the comments he makes before then also strongly suggest that. Yeah, for sure. I'm interpreting him not meaning this one literally. It's still a hell of a statement we've never had somebody make before. But it pales in comparison to the friggin' Song of Ice and Fire that he lays out before us. Now... I've voiced some reservations about this. We've never had anything, books or show, that have ever said this before. This has no clearly established textual support. Would you agree with that? Yes. We have had things that we now can connect to it. We've got Rhaegar's whole The Prince That Was Promised and The Prince That Was Promised legend that we can offer as an alternative explanation. And as we've seen in the trailer for the coming episodes, they're going to go into that too. So sure. I feel like that's a separate thing, but it could be connected. It's overlapping, we'll say that. How about that? Yeah, yeah, a little, little, little Venn diagram. So it's very much new. How do I feel about it? I have to figure they're not making this up out of whole cloth, that they at least got some support with respect to George R. R. Martin for it. But from a filmmaking standpoint, I think it's the most stilted part of the episode. So I will just say that. I think this comes across as the least organic of the moments, and the most that they're trying to connect the two series together in a more obvious kind of way. So that brought me out of it a little bit. As a prophecy itself, it's going to require a lot of additional explanation to make it work. And in the end, I don't think I need it. 
I didn't need this kind of extra connection in terms of explaining why Aegon did what he did. I'd almost just prefer if this was just Aegon's ambition rather than some delusions of grandeur on the subject of him being the prince that was promised, which could also, you know, almost undermine myself there, because that could be his own ambition there, too. So, I feel like it can't exist in a vacuum. There's a lot they're going to have to explain in show or otherwise to make it work and make it understand why we haven't heard it before, why the knowledge is clearly lost, why the hell it's kept secret, and also to justify in my mind why this just needed to occur. Why isn't it... Why is it doing anything other than just giving us a, a branching connection between two shows rather than having some valid justification to exist in its own right? They can do all those things, but at present, it's still just potential rather than something I can concretely say I like rather than I am at least a little bit uncomfortable with at this time. Hmm, okay. I uh, I like it uh, for pretty much the same reasons I stated in the reaction pod. I think that it gives Aegon... I've always thought of Aegon as a as a heroic figure. I've never thought of him as a punitive guy, uh, especially how he went about the conquest. I think he's got some character to him, and the idea that he was doing it in part altruistically, I like that idea. I love. Heron Hall I says lo- hi, sir. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was. I mean, he was doing the. I mean, yeah, of course, yeah, he did. He he burned <laughs> the, his enemies. The fields of fire. But, say hi. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that he didn't. He wasn't overly cruel in how he did it. If you bended the knee, he he allowed you to keep your land and he brought you into the fold. Torrin Stark, like, sure, yes. Yeah, there was there was some there he had a he had a man's gotta have a code, Spencer. Yes. Man had a code. Uh, hey, All right? hey, to quote to, to quote your Taiwan here, that if people defy you you must greet them with fire and blood. But when they fall to their knees you must help them up again, otherwise no one will bend their knee before you. So I've always had a pretty positive image of Aegon, so this this tracks with that. This doesn't break that I like the connection to the main series in this, that it did require a Targaryen to defeat the... I mean, is this word-for-word perfect? No, it's not, because not all of Westeros was united before Mm -hmm. they fell, because Cersei and her goons still weren't united. But it did... The Targaryens did unite a massive coalition of people in that show to fight the others when you considered Jon Snow as a Targaryen. And so I, I love that the revelation of Jon Snow as a Targaryen and his connection to this specifically, uh, really was, is really fucking cool and really resonate. And you say like, well, what, why does it ha- what, like, why does this have to exist? Well, I, I don't know that we'll ever be able to give you an answer that like will make, will please you. For me, I think it's just pretty cool that the Targaryens had at least a modicum of an altruistic reason for what they were doing in ruling Westeros and that there was a con- ultimately a connection to Jon Snow and what he did to defeat the others. My favorite part about this theory so far, though, was you and I the next morning spending like 35 minutes trying to find a reason to understand how, if it is indeed passed from king to heir, how it got from Magor to Jahiris. Which we found an explanation that we were both were comfortable with, but I like I like that you and I are both enough nerds that we both kind of realized that at the same time of, oh, that doesn't work. How could that work? And worked no. out the family tree to make it happen. Because basically there was a coup for Magor. I mean, Magor was murdered, yeah. and like and, and Jaehaerys came about. Magor's heir. No, but I yeah, there there was a way that it could have occurred, and I also think that it would be okay if if 
I'm okay with either option of it getting lost here somewhere in the Dance of Dragons and it goes away. Has to. Well, you say has to. I'm not sure of that. It could have, it could have continued. It just could have been something that the Kings didn't take super seriously or whatever. And it could have died with Ares. That could have been interesting too if they, if they decide to go that route. But we'll need some evidence for both. We seem to believe, I think we have reason to believe that Rhaegar did not know it and had to effectively discover an alternative version of it himself, which seems to indicate that it either died off or that at least the Mad King didn't share the information with him, which is effectively it dying off right there. I'm I'm not sh- I'm not sure it's the same as the prince that was promised though. I'm not sure that's the same thing. We'll see. My house theory is that we're going to see it possibly die within the show, and that's an element of a spoiler, but not much of one. That we may see a bit of a destabilization of the Targaryen reign and their old traditions before this show is done. So to round out the recap, we see all of the lords having bent the knee. We see Viserys proclaim Rhaenyra his his heir. We see Rhaenyra look down, look up, breathe in, and bam, she's the heir. That's how we end the episode. And we're hearing Danny's theme in the background as that's going on. And then as soon as it cuts to black, we get the Game of Thrones theme. A dragon roars. Episode over. Recap done. A well done bit of, bit of television accomplished. And w- one point there with respect to the ending scene. George R. R. Martin, similar to the various frumpy dads he describes, is a big fan of history, and often some of the events that he puts into his books mirror certain events in our own history. Uh, if you're curious, look up the pragmatic sanction of 1713, when Charles VI, the Holy Roman Empire, basically got all of the lords and kings of Europe to try to agree that, okay, I don't have a male heir, everyone's going to be okay with my oldest daughter, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Being uh-huh. my heir afterwards. Everyone agrees, right? I will give you money. I will give you lands. Sign whatever treaties you want. Just everybody sign here in the dotted line that everybody's okay with it, right? Everyone agree? This is, yep. I've, I've, I've explained before that when this has occurred in history, mm-hmm. and when it's occurring here, this is Spencer making a plan. It's, uh-huh. Yep. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it is that exactly. That's that. that's and that's kind of that's kind of what they're doing. I think I think they're all thinking. I have some reservations about this. I have some concerns. I'm obviously going to say yes now, yeah. but it's a it's a maybe from most of the guys in that room. I'm not sure it's a maybe from Lord Corliss Valerian. I think it's a yes from him because of the history of his wife being passed over and how he viewed that as wrong. I think he's a hard yes. I think he might be the only hard yes in the fucking crowd. Uh, I think very much so. We know, you and I know that some of these guys are going to honor their oaths more than others, but I think the sea snake is honoring what he's agreeing to right here more than anybody. Absolutely. Okay, let's get into our segments. Let's do best line of the episode. Spencer, do you have any nominees here for me? God Emperor of the segment, best line of the episode. I mean, I, I got a couple here. Um, this, this, I mean, you and I struggled with the later seasons of Game of Thrones, particularly season eight, in terms of finding quotable lines per episode. I mean, we would scrape the bottom of the barrel to even get two or three. I got like ten for this episode alone. Just showing I'd the like, to start, I'd the like to start with can I start with 172 years before Daenerys Targaryen? How they cut all the words away except that. That was so cool. That was a brilliant little touch right there. Um, Shout out to the casuals. One that you one that you highlighted before, this discomfort is how we serve the realm. The child bed is our battlefield. Great line from mother to daughter there in terms of summarizing how the world views them. Um, you want me to go through my list? You into this round round? Yeah, yeah. You keep you keep going. I'll jump in when I have one. Okay. Um, a line that I very much like from Viserys. Do you think Damon is distracted by his present tasks, and that his thoughts and energies are occupied? Well, one would hope so, considering the associated costs. 
Then let us consider your goal well invested, Lord Beesbury. It's a great line, and it shows that there's a certain degree of reasoning and sense out of Viserys, too, that people don't recognize. Renera, I hope for my father that he gets a son. As long as I can recall, it's all he's wanted. Mm-hmm. That's a great one. And one going off that uh, is from Viserys to his wife, Emma. Uh, this child is a boy. I mean, Emma, I'm certain of it. I've never been more certain of anything. The dream. It was clearer than a memory. Our son was born wearing Aegon's iron crown. When I heard the sound of thundering hooves, splintering shields, and ringing swords, and I placed our son upon the iron throne as the bells of the Grand Sept tolled, and all the dragons roared as one. Methinks, as is so common in this show and in these books, prophecies have a tendency to be accurate, just not in the way that you understand them. Correct. Yep. There might be some truth to that at some point, maybe, who knows. Um, we, we, we do tend to get some level of truth from all these Targaryen prophecies somewhere along the line. Or certain Red Priestess ones as well. Uh, I'm just going to say as a general block category, all of Damon's provocations towards the High Towers. Just all of them. Just all as one giant chunk. They're delightful. It's amazing. Uh, Carry on, you were saying something about my impunity. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. Uh, you could have the Baratheon's tongue for that. Uh, this is Otto Hightower talking to Viserys. Uh, tongues will not change the succession. Let them wag. That's a delightfully Vespasian kind of line. It tickled me that he said it. Uh, from your favorite, Rhaenys. Uh, These knights are as green as summer grass. None have known real war. The lords sent them to the tourney field with fists full of steel and balls full of seed, and we expect them to act with honor and grace. It's a marvel that war didn't break out at the first blood. It's a great line that you said really summarizes what knowledge and understanding that she has to offer that Viserys can't even attempt to. Uh, to do Otto Hightower, the gods have yet to make a man who lacks the patience for absolute power, your grace. That may be just the ultimate truism of the episode because, man, you can't just dispute that logic right there. Do, do, do. Uh, Viserys' line about feast on their corpses. The, uh, crows come to feast on their corpses. That was a good reference to the books. Damon's the heir for a day is just the most witty, evil turn of phrase Ooh. one could imagine. Ooh. Hey, are we printing up the shirts, Spencer? Heir for a day? Uh, I would happily. Gotta wear them. I would wear that thing. And a heartbeat. Uh, Damon, Hilarious. You already said it out loud, so I'll just say it. Damon's speech to Viserys about not trusting Otto Hightower and how you'd be the better hand of a king. He's a cunt! It, it, it's a great speech. It doesn't land at all, but bra- bravo for the effort. Uh, and then just one of the final lines of the episode. I, Viserys Targaryen, first of his name, king of the Andals, and the Roynyar, and the first men. The fact that they mentioned the Roynyar made me happy. I'm just going to say that one right there. Um, uh, protector of the realm, do hereby name Rhaenyra Targaryen, princess of Dragonstone, and heir to the Iron Throne. Placing a capstone on the whole episode and the tension and the drama that's going to go on from here. So, long list, sir, but I've given you a few to pick from. All right, so I've selected best line of the episode. Episode one, House of the Dragon is when this great winter comes, Rhaenyra, all of Westeros must stand against it. And if the world of men is to survive, a Targaryen must be seated on the Iron Throne, a king or queen strong enough to unite the realm against the cold and the dark. Aegon called his dream the Song of Ice and Fire. I, I will have you know that I did not mention that was an option. You are picking prophecy in spite of me. <laughs> yep. Uh, that's that's it for me. I think you could easily pick Rhaenyra being named, you know, the the heir, and I think you could also pick that line from Otto Hightower about the gods haven't made a man 
who lacks the patience for absolute power. Both of those are wonderful, but I picked this one because it has sparked the most conversation. Yes. I find it, while, while you pointed out that it, it might have been shoehorned in a little bit, it might have felt stilted to some people, nothing has made, I'm, I'm gonna, I hate to be gatekeeper sounding here, but like real big fans of A Song of Ice and Fire talk like that line. This is true. That has, that has made us all spaz out. And that's what I'm looking for, Spencer. That's what I missed so bad for the last three years. The fan base. The Monday morning, the Monday morning conversation, the fan base activated all of the people that I know, uh, but mostly just online who love the show that all of us getting on a social and talking about it in the morning. This is the type of thing that gets us doing it. So shout out to the show for that. Well done, sir. Now, in light of that, do you want to ask me whether Game of Thrones is back? So, Spencer. So, I got to leave. So, uh, here's something I noticed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, we got Balerian skull. How big would you say Balerian skull is? I would say big enough to swallow swallow a mammoth whole. Fucking monstrous. Then we saw Cyrex. Now, did you notice Cyrex's head looked? Very, very different than what we saw from Drogon, right? It doesn't have the little spikes and points. It's almost like worm-like. It like it, it doesn't it doesn't have like a big top of the head. What I mean here is that that dragon looks different than the other dragons we've seen before. Correct, Cyrex? I mean, you mean Caraxes? No, Cyrex. We're at the beginning of the episode. Oh, true. Yes, Cyrex also looked different. Yes, and then Caraxes looked completely different than that. Very the much red so, worm. Yes. So what I'm saying here is that we are getting dragons as characters with different physical attributes. With different, like, tolerances for certain things, different people that they like, different actions. You yourself noted that Cyrax looked sad at the funeral mm-hmm. when it had to, when it had to burn the funeral pyre. We're getting dragons as characters. We're getting the world excited about dragons again. Spencer, is Game of Thrones back? I think Game of Thrones may be back for a few reasons. That is certainly one of them. And I think the one that is most indisputable is that 10 million people watched this live, according to even HBO's numbers. I know. I had so much fun with you because, like, I th- you, you're you're always negative. You're 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 it's always what I am. The, you're always assume the worst. What did you What did you say? It was going to have like three or four million people. No, no. I said. What was your number? I said five or six. I said five or six. I thought I was going to. Well, you 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 nailed about half of the audience. Yeah, it was 10 million, which is over 50 percent of what the fucking finale pulled. 10 million is in about online with what. Season seven was getting. Season seven was getting about eleven million, a little yeah. bit over than that. I, but it's about online with season seven. And you remember what a cultural phenomenon it was by season seven. Ten million is bigger. Let's just put this in context. Ten million is bigger than anything HBO has done since Game of Thrones went off the air, and it is almost double the average of it is its highest rated show absence Game of Thrones. So since Game of Thrones, the highest rated show on HBO is Euphoria. It averages about 6 million viewers an episode. Mm-hmm. This got fucking 10. You can't overstate how big that is for HBO, and what a win it is for yours fucking truly, who has been trying to tell people, no, season 8 did not make people hate Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones isn't over. Like, I, I heard this crap for three years. I don't like that. Oh, my God. The, the last... The last season was so bad. People don't care anymore. People aren't on Reddit anymore. The game, it's over. The whole phenomenon's over. They'll never do another con. Blah, 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 blah. 10 million people? Suck it. 
I'm claiming victory. I was so pleased. I, I Game w- of Thrones is back! I, I was thinking the best that we could hope for would be very good season four, season five numbers, and they'd have to build up from there. And that'd be a good building off point. You and I were debating that in a new world where most people are streaming, where they're not watching it live, where they're watching it on their own terms, that they can only hope for so much. And yet 10 million plus people showed up to watch it on night. In on the night first five live. hours. Yeah. In the first five hours. Imagine what it, imagine what views were in the first two days. I couldn't even guess. It's probably astronomical. So what what that tells all of us is that, like, we, first of all, this podcast probably won't get a lot of listeners. Why? Because it's so fucking popular, there's a thousand podcasts to listen to House of the Dragon. And that's okay, because I like talking to you, and I like I like the fans that, you know, do listen, and we, we, we want to do it for them. My point being, though, is that this is more like Star Wars than it is like Ted Lasso, right? <laughs> this is... This is fucking monstrous and in the cultural uh, consciousness. And all of those fucking people who told me that season eight ended it, that people don't care anymore, people don't care about Game of Thrones, they were all wrong. It got the, everything got activated again, and ten million people watched. So yeah. I'm very happy. Um, so I, honestly, they could even they, they we could see a drop to down to like eight million or seven million after this, and it would still be a massive victory. It, like they, ten million is so blew the number out so high that they've got a buffer here. Would you, is it also fair to say that almost everybody who told you that also that you know watched the episode? Of course they did. Yeah. Of course they did because they were, they, you know what they were? They were salty about the last season. They were mad and by With saying... justification. Sure, fine. But that was, they, they, you, they, they can't strangle D&D. They can't get D&D in a room to strangle them. So that was their way of trying to punish the show, is saying, you know what, I don't care anymore. But of course they still cared because everybody still watched. So shout out, Game of Thrones is back! What a good segment. Spencer, last segment's yours. Last segment, let's talk about a few book-to-screen changes. There were a few this episode. I don't want to go into some of them now, just because I think they're going to develop more later. Like, as much as prophecy was the subject of all fan discussion... I think in the next couple episodes we're going to get that even more further developed and rounded. I want to talk about it then. And as much as the fan base has discussed the idea that certain characters are different races in book and show, I don't want to talk about that now. Maybe we'll talk about it later. Maybe we'll see in a little bit later whether they how they integrate into the plot or not. Whatever. For right now, something we've already referenced, but I think could have one very interesting legs going forward. The aging up of Rhaenyra, making Rhaenyra and Alicent the same age. We've talked about this before. Let's go into a little bit more detail. At the start of the book, or at least the major events that we see depicted in this episode, Rhaenyra is seven years old. Would you agree, sir, that Rhaenyra is not seven years old on the show? Yes. Would you say that Rhaenyra and Alicent are probably both intended to be about 17, 18 years old? Yes. That... Very clearly establishes that since Allison is about 17, 18 right now in the books, they've aged Rhaenyra up about 10 years and likely aged her parents probably about 10 years or 15 years up, respectively, too, to accommodate that. Because I think it's fair to say that her mom didn't give birth to her when she was six. I think that's probably a Yeah, I'm not sure they're actually going for 18, but it's, 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 in, that, it's in that range. It's negligible. S- second half of the teenage years, probably. It's probably, what, I think, what they're going for in some shape or form. So this is, a, this is a very big change, and I think this is a change, as much as I'm often nervous about the subject of changes from book to show, that has a lot of great potential for a few reasons. One, one that we've already mentioned, it sets up that Rhaenyra and Alicent have a great relationship. Now, I'm not going to go into much in the way of spoilers about why that's a really important thing going forward, and a very big change from the books where there was a 10-year separation from them, and Alicent was just a lady of court around her mom, and Rhaenyra barely interacted with her until certain events going forward but 
That's a great ad. That adds a great degree of a very interesting dimension to their characters. It provides a great degree of depth to their relationship, and a certain element of tragedy going forward for how events will ultimately unfold. Uh, I'm curious to your view, though, when it comes to that. Do you think that that extra addition of a relationship between them has uses to the show and a, a useful addition to the books? Hundred percent. Yes, it's going to. It, it's just going to help the story. It's just going to help the story. That's all I can say. I, I very much. I, I, there's so much more. So it much, makes certain things kind of weird and creepy, and it's going to make people uncomfortable. But it makes the story more interesting. I think the other the other useful thing I think it does too is that it makes Rhaenyra a power player from day one of the story in a way that gives her a much more active agency and role that she otherwise would lack. Because Rhaenyra at age seven is a precocious seven. But there's only so much that she's involved when it comes. Well, to I'm the king story. of my right on my outlaw baits. She has that kind of a she got Tom and book Tom and mentality. She has punching the punch in the mouth. She has very much book Tom and mentality. But it also it means that she's interacting with a lot of the characters that are otherwise going to be major players going forward as a seven year old. Kristen Cole, she gives him her favor at age seven. The tournament's happening there. Very I, you know, different dimension I, to their relationship. But, but it's not. I you know I, yeah I, I I get your point, but I mean I think that Martin. The ages of some of the things that happen in Martin's novels is uncomfortable. I even age them up in my own mind when I'm reading it. Because it's kind of hard to imagine a seven-year-old doing some of the stuff that she does. But he is at least consistent with that because in his mind, in the in the medieval world, people had to grow up a lot faster. And in like 13, people were having kids. So, very, you know, it's just different. It's just very different. Very much so. And Rhaenyra does some things at age 14 in the books that would make anybody of our modern sensibilities incredibly uncomfortable but it's pretty normal for the world of Westeros fairly normal enough for a medieval setting at least from the lens that Martin is painting my point though is from our modern sensibilities and from just a practical aspect establishing Rhaenyra as a power player as a person who is invested in being an heir as a person who is invested in politics from day one gives her an active involvement in the story and an active role in terms of what are the very much Game of Thrones that's going to play out that she otherwise would lack or otherwise be delayed. People are mostly making plans around her as a result of her age rather than her being actively involved in them, including with respect to the naming of her as an heir. Whereas by comparison, as a result of aging her up, it feels much more that she is actively involved in her own story that otherwise we wouldn't get to see to later in the season or even next season based on how things may play out. So, as much as this is a weird statement for me, I feel that this is an addition that it was well thought out. It's going to require adjustments going forward for it to work. And as you said, it actually is going to add to, I think, to some of the discomfort that we otherwise would lack or have focused on with different things. But I think it's a very useful addition, if for no other purpose, to get us invested in her cause and her side from day one in a way that the show needs to going into the end of this season and going into the tensions and conflicts and there you go forward with respect to that. So... This is a change that I wholeheartedly endorse, and I hope you agree. So this is kind of like book nerd bitching. This is kind of like like book, like we used to do in the old GOT Got Questions podcast. This is kind of a little bit book nerd bitching. It's a spin on it, yes. Yeah, all right. So I'm going to take a different route here. I'm going to talk about giving Viserys the choice of Emma, Aaron, or the heir, and having him choose the heir, and not giving Emma agency over that decision, and basically murdering Emma, Aaron. Um, Which is definitely an addition. It, it's not something that it, well, well, but, that, but it's so 
Exactly. It's so hard because like the story is being told in a fire in, in fire and blood from either mushrooms perspective or a maester's perspective. Neither one of those would have insight into what was going on in the birthing room. So this could have happened. It just couldn't have made it. It could have potentially not made it to the ears of the people telling the story in fire and blood. So it, it, it's not necessarily like a, like you say, it's not changes to tradition. I don't, I don't know if I like it or not, to be honest with you. I know I'm an I'm a eternally optimistic person about World of Ice and Fire, but I just feel like I liked Viserys as the well-meaning, frumpy, middle-aged dad of Westeros. And this gives him a stain, a sin, an evil act. If you if Through a certain lens, it's an evil act by not consulting his wife that really changes how I view that character. Now... I don't think that the majority of people are going to start viewing Viserys as a villain in the story. I, I don't think that. But I think that you, through that action, you can always view, uh, that you can always see that sin in him. And it really, I think, it fundamentally changes the character for people who, who have, you know, who look at it very closely. So, yep. um, it's a, it's an addition to the books. It, you know, Martin talked about how they fleshed out the character of Viserys a lot more in the show and that we get a lot more. This is one of those things. I'm still kind of mixed on it, but I think ultimately it it changes my opinion of Viserys for the worst, and I'm not sure that's a good thing. Yeah, I have mixed feelings on it. I think it reflects that they are portraying a different Viserys, or a very, at least a very different aspect of Viserys than we ever got from the books. Viserys from the books, I think we can kind of summarize as happy, fat, jovial, and not caring that much about the details. He's a guy that threw some great parties, who people loved, who people enjoyed, who wanted very much to make everybody around him happy and didn't necessarily get that much involved in the details of actually pondering out the succession or the betterment of the realm. Kind of let other people handle that thing. Sometimes to the detriment of the realm. We never got to really see the aspect of the brooding, very much put upon, overwhelmed by his duties side of Viserys in the book. I never picked up on that when I read or anything about the, the book or the short stories or anything else. The show seems to be really heavily emphasizing that, that he is the man-child. He is the guy that just wants to throw great parties and make all the realm happy. But now they're focusing on the depressive aspect of that kind of personality. There's more more depth there, exactly. More depth. There's a, a person that maintains that kind of mindset also can have a deep, deep depression. And, or a, or a deep uncertainty or lack of confidence in who they I'm are in the sh- position. I'm not sure it's a depression, but I do think he has a, he's got a sadness in him, right? Sure. Cause that's a difference, right? It is. To have like, to, when you, when you fully expose yourself to, when you, yeah, exactly. When you fully expose yourself to show that you have something deep rooted in you that's sad as opposed to like active depression, which would like limit his ability to operate. But it, it becomes very hard to say whether this would have happened in the books or not though, because his wife really isn't a character. We don't see almost anything of her in the books. He's not much of a character, to no. be honest he, with you. He sets the scene, he sets the various things in motion, and then he exits stage left. So it's hard to say what, how, to what degree this is a change or not, just because we never really got that much of an impression of who they were. The show has rounded them out for us in its own idea, from its own imagining, and painted in very short order very complete characters. But... What little this doesn't fit with what little we know of Viserys, but as given how little we know, it's hard to say whether it's inaccurate or not. So I, I have mixed views upon it. I can say though that at least at present, I am more interested in Viserys as a character than I ever was in the books. 
I think that's true, but I think that was going to be true regardless, just because of the screen time he gets. But uh, and Patty Constantine is just a a wonderful actor. Uh, But I'm not sure they needed to add this. I I would have. I would have preferred that he lean down and ask Emma Aaron and she say, yeah, go ahead and do it. I would have liked that. That You know, you talk a lot about, like, I want the sentence. I would have liked that sentence because without it, it's murder. It, uh, it, so that's tough. The scene paints him as a villain. Now, a villain in some way, in some, nowhere near the degree of his wife, but in some way a victim or at least cursed by his own responsibilities, the weight of the crown, that he's willing to do this utterly evil deed because he feels that he's required to do so. Right. But it's hard to ever get past that this is the guy that did the thing. It's like it's like, we, it's like we often talked about with Jamie Lannister, is that as far as he goes, he's still the guy that pushed Bran out the window, episode one. Right. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good callback. I agree. It's like an original sin of the character. Yeah. You just kind of can't get past. And they could, they've given him one that he didn't have in any other parts of this story that was written. So, I don't know. Just, just an interesting change. Um, okay. Are we ready to wrap this coverage up, Spencer? I feel we are. All right, this was wonderful. I, I, you know what I like about this is that while you have quibbles, you have concerns, you're not out. Absolutely you know, I've not. done pod, I've done podcasts with you on shows that you were pretty much one foot out of the pool, <laughs> and you are not. Never I stay abs- one. I absolutely am not, and so I think that you, what you got in this podcast is two people who are really enthusiastic about being back in the world of Restros, about being included in the fandom, about talking with you all every week about what's going on in this show, and please go to MangumTalks.com, give us your comments, your thoughts, you can hit me up on uh, at Mangum Talks on Twitter. You can go to Facebook.com slash Mangum Talks and hit us up there. We got, we're got we on social everywhere. Anywhere you see Mangum Talks on social, please let us know what you think of the show, what you think of the podcast, anything we could do differently to better entertain you or better engage you because we just have a grand time doing this. It's an awful lot of fun for us, and we really appreciate you listening. We will be back with you next week. Sunday night, Spencer. Mm-hmm. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. We will be back. Let's get ready to rumble for round two, episode two. We are going to be with you that night for about 15, 20, 30 minutes, whatever we go, to talk about our immediate reactions. And then we will be back with you one week from today with our review of Episode 2. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you Sunday.